You're listening to the global ultra-running podcast, Talk Ultra. I'm Ian Corliss. This is episode 239 of Talk Ultra, and on this week's show, we've got Speed Goat Carl and Andy Blow from Precision Hydration. How are you? I'm not doing too bad. How are you doing? Um, I feel as though I've aged since I last spoke to you, which I have. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my world. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think I think you and I are occupying the same space, aren't we? Yeah, pretty much. It's uh, not getting any easier, that's for sure. Well, you say that, but you keep keep rocking up at 100 miles and doing well. Uh, yeah, I'm doing all right. You know, I mean, I've been healthy for, you know, relatively healthy all since, I don't know, May or something, so... Yeah, I mean, I just, they're not any, you know, they're not getting any faster, but um, I can rack them. You know, the courses that I've been doing are, they're not super hard, but, uh, you know, 22 hours, I can handle it mentally. So, um, <laughs> you've got to get to that 100, you know, it's hard to, it's like when you recover between them, you you just don't run as much in between and you kind of just hope to stay healthy. You know, my goal really is just to not, just not hurt myself, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I actually, obviously, no pressure to win. I, I actually wondered, you know, how much, how much training are you doing? Because you've been running for so long and, you know, like you uh-huh. said, you can sort of like rock up at 100 and just sort of get into that zone. But but what's yeah. happening in between them? You know, I mean, like, do you have any sort of consistency or is it just going out and moving? You know, it's kind of just going out and moving. I think after each 100, I've, I've mostly, we'll say at the race end on Sunday morning, then I probably won't run, well, I probably won't go out into the mountains or do something until probably Thursday or Friday. Yeah. And that would just consist of a hike, you know, not even downhill, just, just hiking. And now that I'm in, I'm in Colorado in the San Juans, So it's, it's a little different than Salt Lake. There's a little less snow here. So I'm still able to get out, but I'm really just hiking around for like the first week, mostly nothing. Then I get into some hiking and then I'll run when I start to feel like I'm ready to run, which might be, Maybe 10 days after the race. I mean, and then, you know, 35, a couple weeks of 40 miles a week or something. You definitely don't need a long run in the middle because, you know, you're running a long run every four or five weeks. Yeah. That's a hundred miles. Yeah. So, um, and like you said, I've been training, I've been running for so long that it's, it's really just management on how to keep my body healthy without overusing it too quickly after doing so many. Yeah. When, and when I did, three and seven weeks recently it was a let's see it was a three-week span and then it was a four-week span and i planned to do another one december 2nd in virginia but you know my my left hip is barking a little bit Mm. so i'm now just uh you know i felt really good running yesterday 10 days post-race i felt really good and then you know i started running downhill and again i'm not running fast but i started running downhill it started to get a little achy and sore yeah tell me about it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah i know right and, and so i just so i just walked home the last two miles and said don't hurt yourself it's okay yeah, yeah. um and you know today i'll take off and i'll see how it feels tomorrow so i'm really i the, the, the nice thing that it it's 
has been going on for me is that I've been able to enter the races at sort of last minute. So mm. I don't have to like, you know, plan a race 10 months in advance, you know, throw my money towards it and all that stuff. I, I've been able to sort of pick and choose here late season. Yeah. So, uh, and the convenience factor was like the Candyland race was a two and a half, two hour and 15 minute drive from my house. I slept in my car. It was great because it was totally old school for me. I yeah. got to sleep in the desert. Um, it was great. Um, so yeah, it, it's been, you know, again, I'm not running massive miles. I think my total miles this year, Ian, are right about 2000. So that, yeah. and that's not very much, you know? No, no, not when you consider you've got hundred mile races in there as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've got. 500 and i've got almost 600 miles of technically race miles yeah and then 1400 miles of training which is you know minimal yeah i was i was injured early season off and on a lot so that bit into the numbers a little bit but um you know i mean i'm hanging in there my body's i'm okay with what happens with my hip here for the next one we'll see um i haven't pulled the trigger on it yet so um but i know i can enter up to like three or four days before it so yeah. uh do, do you get frustrated, Carl, by the the fact that um, – uh, how can I word this? Do you get frustrated that you can't have any consistent training, that you feel as though you're stopping your body becoming too painful? Do, do, do you, like, get FOMO? Do you, do you feel as though you're missing out or you're not bothered because you've been doing it so long? Um, I think I'm really not bothered because I've been doing it so long. I think I sort of expect – and I expect myself to break down here and there, you know, I mean, there's no question. You can't, I mean, I want to stay healthy all the time and I want to be able to train more and stuff, but you know, I'm older now and I, I know how to do it. Um, the frustration comes when I can't get out and do anything. Yeah. Tell um, me about when it. I can go out for, yeah. When I can go out for even just an easy hike for five miles or something like that. Yeah. At least I feel like I did something during the day and yeah. I, I, my, my head, my head space is okay with that. But if I can't do anything, if I'm limping around the house trying to do something, then, yeah, I'm, there's no question I'm frustrated. Uh, I've got plenty of work to do in my new house, so i got plenty of stuff to do. But, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm exactly the same. You know, I, I, I've had, like, since COVID, I've had, I've had, like, a really good consistent block of, of a lot of training and a lot of running. And, and my body wasn't without pain because my knees are pretty shot, but, but everything yeah. was going, like, really, really well. But this year, the God, the knees have just been like giving me so much grief, and and you know I've had to, I've had to reduce everything to to try and manage the pain. And like if I if I run a couple of hours one day, then the next day has got to be a walk. It can't be a run. Uh, and then the day after, it might be okay to run, but then you can't run too long. And and you just there's just this constant level of slight frustration in that, you know what? I feel as though now, like I'm having to really manage how I coax my body through the time, um, so that I can still keep doing it. Because I think that is the important thing. You could just blow everything and just think, okay, you know, I'll just like carry on. I'll I'll, I'll put up with the pain, but you know that you're going to pay a price. And, yeah, um, and it's, that, it's just how it works. Like even when Cheryl this morning, I was talking to my wife Cheryl about you know going to Devil, the called Devil Dog Hundred in Virginia. She's like, well, you know, you, you should still go and try. And I'm like, why hurt myself? You know, I mean, yeah. why why fly across the country and and have these doubts of like, is my hip going to hang in there or whatever? Um, it just isn't worth the the mental mental anguish that I'm going to have afterwards yeah. of not being able to do anything. So it's, I mean, I think I'll reach that hundred. I think. 
I think what's been crazy too is this last three that I did were fairly close together. I almost feel like during each race, I, I get a little stronger. Um, yep. Yep. You know, cause I'm doing it so often. I'm mentally like I'm into it, you know, like yep. Canyonlands, I wasn't, I wasn't really fast or anything like that, but I, I, I just plowed through the race. Like it was like, okay, like whatever, you know, got it done. I jumped in my car. I took a three hour nap. I drove right back home and I was back on my couch, like, you know, in the afternoon. So it's, it's, I feel like I get stronger if I do more, but at the same time, I've really got to pay attention to this, trying to stay healthy more than anything. Yeah. I mean, we can't look back at the, the few months that, that we've not spoken and talk about everything that's happened. But, I, you know, no. I, we've had sort of like social chats about what's been going on. And, and I've got to talk to you about Backyard because <laughs> <laughs> this year it just went completely bonkers. And like you and I were sort of like messing at each other. How many laps are they going to do? And it's getting to crazy levels now, isn't it? And I'm just sitting there looking at my computer going, Really? Really? You're going round a loop that many times? <laughs> it's bonkers. And there's and you know, the crazy thing about the last you know, the, the, the we'll call it the world championship, whatever, and there were a lot of people still in it in yeah. like seventy seventy laps, you know? Yeah. And that was when when it when the, the highest you know, highest level got up to like seventy two or seventy five or whatever it was, that was like, Oh my god, three hundred miles, but a hundred and eight? Yeah, I mean, good lord, I, the, the sleep factor. I don't know how, you know. I've never tried it. So not that I'm not that I. I don't even. I don't even want to go there. But it's like, how do they? How are these guys staying awake? I mean, I understand you get wired after a certain point, but there's got to be a point that is just good lord. You know, I can't imagine. Okay, it's over. So, so the, all the guys that went so far, it's over. Do they even? I mean. Do they go home and just sleep for like nine days in a row? <laughs> well, I, I I would imagine that they they probably go through many days of not being able to sleep. When I say not able to sleep, I mean consistent blocks. I'm sure what they're doing is like drifting off for 20 minutes and then probably waking yeah. up with the legs in pain and the body yeah. wondering what the hell is going on. So I would imagine there's probably a week or two weeks of really wild sleep probably dreams yeah. probably hallucinations and all sorts of things and yeah. then eventually that everything will settle down but i but i what fascinates me is is well there's several things that fascinates me and i think this is what greats about laz the fact that he came up with this concept because if you think about it you sort of go hmm why did nobody think of this before because it is so damn simple right. it, it's impressive but i think Unlike, say, a 200-mile race or a 300-mile race, with the laps, even if you run the laps quickly, there is no time to sleep. You can maybe have five right. minutes or ten minutes rest, but that's not sleeping. And 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 this is the thing with Backyard. You know, you do a 200-miler, and I don't know, let's say you've got 100 hours to do it. If you want to take a two-hour sleep, you can and that makes a huge yeah. difference. But with Backyard, it, it's five minutes. You know, even Harvey, who who ended up winning the thing, I mean, you were watching him in the latter stage, and he was sprinting off the start line. I know. And then, and then he, you know, he was bringing all these tactics into play. And sometimes he was actually finishing with maybe just a, a minute or two minutes to spur, and then literally grabbing something to eat and a quick drink and then going out on the next loop. And I'm thinking, seriously. <laughs> yeah, I know. His sprints off the start line were pretty funny, but maybe this concept of like, 
you know, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of go as hard as I sort of can for the first mile, which, I, you know, we hate to say go out fast and bank miles, but this is a different format. So maybe he went out a mile or so, or even a half mile kind of quick, and then he could even go slower to get through the first lap, through the lap, you know? Um, I don't know. I think it's, it, I, how could he even move like that to sprint off the line? <laughs> um, no. I, you know, I, to me, that's like, good Lord. I'd, the injury factor risk and all those types of things are involved. And yeah, I mean, it's it, what a concept he came up with. I think it was really cool. It was, it's cool to like, you know, rock the boat or mix it up a little bit and do something different. And Laz is, you know, he's been that genius over the years with his Barkley stuff. And then with this, and uh, I mean, what's yeah. next, right? Like, I don't need, we don't know, you know, it's sort of like, it fascinates me. And, 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 you sort of do get drawn into it because you're just thinking, how far are they going to go? Like, how, how long is this going to last? And and what is important is, and, and you said this, Carl, is that because this was like the world championship, so the people that were there had qualified at other backyard ultras by winning them, you end up with this really high level of talent that are good at the backyard format. Hence why you have so many still in it at like 70 yards because they've all been there before so they're sort of used to it um and what is important is that harvey can actually only excel because there's somebody else to push him because th the simple rule is is that once you're two left when when one stops you finish the next lap and then you're out, you stop. Yeah. So even if Harvey felt good, he couldn't go for a world record if there was only him left. Right. So it takes the assist for him to get the world record, which is the other dynamic factor of it. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to have a, a good, really good field to chase that world record and, and or whatever you want to call it. But yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's a really, really cool dynamic. And, and even though it's not, it doesn't technically interest me to even try one of those things, but um it is really a cool concept and it's uh it's it's fun to watch when it gets late because you know i mean i can't imagine hanging around the finish line seeing these zombies come out of the woods or the road or whatever they are <laughs> and here they come oh they're gonna sit for three five minutes whatever it is and uh and yeah. out and go and um yeah it's it's it was it was fun to watch i really you know i i don't watch things online too tight but that was one that i was like man these guys are 70 80 and i'd come back every couple hours to see who's left you know and, uh, yeah. But yeah, it was it was pretty wild. Laz needs to do now. Now that he knows that, say, a hundred yards is is about the the finishing time, is he should start the race so that when you get to the hundred yard times, it's on Halloween, <laughs> and then that way, when the people are coming out of the forest looking like zombies, it will be perfect. It yeah, will be the perfect right. Halloween race. Yeah. Um, everybody will look exactly right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine. Talking of races and, and, and possibilities, I've always had this, this idea in the back of my mind, and maybe I should keep it to myself and not put it out on the podcast because maybe somebody will take the idea. But anyway, I, I'm not going to do the idea. I had this idea of, call, of having a race called the Dice Ultra. Okay. And, and basically, uh, what you would do is you'd have a, a race start and finish area, which is the same thing. And then you would have six courses. Okay? Right. 
and the and the six courses would add up to 100 miles but there'd be one loop of say 25 miles one loop of 20 miles one loop of 35 one loop of 10 one loop of 5 so basically you'd have the numbers that add up to 100 right and then each runner would have a dice and the num the sides of the dice would represent the course right so course course 6 is 25 miles course 1 is 5 miles and everybody stands on the start line and they roll their own dice and the number that it comes on is the loop that they run even if they run the so same loop a second time no you can only run the loop right. once right and basically what would happen is you'd have the start line but all the runners would be going off on different loops right you know you might have 20 going off on the 20 mile loop and 30 going off on the 5 mile loop and and so basically it's the fastest time for all six loops but you wouldn't know who you were racing because people were on right. different loops you'd have no idea diff- you were in the whole time exactly right so basically you'd have to you'd have to have a strategy in your head you know do i run the 5 mile loop as hard as i possibly can but if the 5 mile loop was your sixth one maybe you wouldn't have the energy to run it as fast as you can do you see what i mean yeah, the dynamic yeah, yeah, yeah. of it so we're so we're taking the we're taking the time time on each loop yes and then adding it up at the end and add it up and it's the one who does all six loops the fastest is the winner and and it's always this thing that's been playing in my mind that it would be kind of cool. It would be an absolute nightmare for a race director because you'd have to keep control of, of well, for one thing, you'd have to mark six loops, which would be a nightmare. Yeah. Um, and you'd have to be really, really controlled on your start and finish line so that runners were being timed for their specific loops and then rolling the dice and going out to do their next loop. But from a, from a, a race management point of view, coming in say after 20 miles and then rolling the dice and either getting five miles or 30 miles mentally that would would be quite an interesting dynamic I yeah think. yeah i mean something different right i mean that's that's an interesting concept i mean it's 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 funny like the backyard thing like does it attract those who like to really race hard like at the front like a you know a sky race or a utmb race or whatever um it's different format. I I like it. I mean, it, you know, it may not be you who starts that, but um, maybe someone will come up with that idea and give it a shot and see what happens. You know, um, you've got to have the person that the type of runner that's just creative and says, okay, this is sort of a really funky, different kind of race. So, you know, you know who I should speak to. I should speak to Jamil. Right. J- Jamil probably has got the the capacity with the size of his organization and and the area that he works in i mean he's putting on races all the time so every week yeah Yeah. he could immediately come up with the 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 maybe the idea and the concept of how it could work jameel if you're listening let's have a chat (laughs) (laughs) also carl you could like throw in a vk if you're in the right sort of environment right well right if you were in the right place okay you got to do the vk now too you know yeah Uh, so that would be cool 
you know, I, I think it would be a great, a, a really, really cool idea. Nightmare logistically, but a, a very, very cool idea. Yeah, yeah, nice. I like it. And, I mean, I can't remember what we've spoken about and what we haven't spoken about. Um, we haven't spoken about Western states, have we? Uh, not Western, no. I mean, the... It's been a while since Western. I, I put my name in the hat. Yeah, by that, the way. <laughs> yeah. This this is how long it is since we've spoken. I mean, I mean, we can talk about Courtney. Uh, I don't think there's there's any question that she is the goat. Um, oh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, like to she's... say too, like you know, the goat. She, I think, I think you're right. You're absolutely correct. I think she's probably the best ever at this point. What she's done. Um, but you know, it's the it's, it's same about the era thing too. I, I guess like to mention the era back in the days when Ann Tracing was dominating everybody. Granted, the competition was nowhere near the same, but no. it's still dominating, you know, dominating her era. Michael Jordan dominated his era, you know, yeah. um, yeah, just, but I think she is, I mean, to, to stack those three together like that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, in breaking records at the same time, not just winning, I think this is the point, is that no disrespect to Anne, and, and you can't take any, anything away from Anne with her string of victories at Western States. I mean, that will never be done again, no. even, by Court, even by Courtney. It's not, it's, I, I, I don't think it's possible no. in this day and age. No. But what impresses me about Courtney is that even if you, if you take Western States, UTMB, and Hard Rock, they are not similar races. No. There are similarities, but they are not similar races, and and it's it's Courtney's ability to adapt and change. And I mean, you know, she's she's been to Reunion Island and put a course record in there. She's been on the start line of Zagama and did well. I mean, she finished tenth, I think, which is certainly you wouldn't think that she's that was a race that was in her wheelhouse. She's been on the backyard scene. She's done 200 milers and won them. So, you know, when you look at one runner and the variety of things that one runner has done, she's almost in the in the Killian area of ability from mm -hmm. short distance to, to long distance. Yep. And, and I don't think there's, there's many people out there, certainly in the female, um, that, that can match what she's doing. Yeah, and I think Cordy's dominated so much with with in the, on the female side of things that um, we've almost forgotten all the others. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. I hate to say that, well, but it's sort of true. It's like who I when I think off the top of my head, who else is like, you know, one of the fastest? I'm like, I, I don't know, you know, because it's so big dominated. I think you've got to give a real nod to Katie Scheid. Oh, um, sorry, absolutely, yeah, of course, yeah, because Katie this year has has really. You know, I think she's she's blossomed into this amazing ultra runner, and she was before. But I think this year she's like really blossomed. Yeah. Um, you know, she's she won UTMB the other year. This year she was uh, uh, was she second at CCC? I think yes, yeah, second. Yeah. Or on yep. the podium, I can't remember. Yep. Then she won Reunion. Um. So. She's certainly in the Courtney wheelhouse. Uh, she was she was behind Courtney at Weston, <laughs> right? So so she's she's in that that wheelhouse. But she got she got beat by Courtney at Weston. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's like when 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 people used to enter races and Killian was running, 
and and right. and the joke was, well, who's coming second? Right. And I'm sure the women are probably feeling at the moment that if Courtney's on the start line, well, who's coming second? Yeah. Um. But yeah, it, it's it's so interesting to watch, and I I do wonder where or what Courtney does next because when I had her on the podcast, she she said to me like. Winning's nice, but it's not the motivator. It's not the reason why I'm doing all this stuff. Mm. She says, I'm doing it because I, I enjoy it. But she says, I'm, I'm looking for something that breaks me. Right. And I think, I think she thought that the three 100s this year would bring, you know, bring that sort of level of discomfort and pain. And I, I, and I think if you watched her in the latter part of oh, UTMB, she's, <laughs> She yeah. certainly was was feeling the the effects, and I'm sure that that probably made her happy. And she was probably thinking to herself, "Well, I could really find my pain cave now if there was another hundred that I could go to." <laughs> well, that's the thing. You get so addicted to like when you when you stack a bunch together, and so you get so addicted to like being back on that start line when you, when you especially when you win the one previously. You're like, "That's yeah. fun," you know. Um, it's fun. It's it's fun until it's not fun but it's painful but we all know it's painful but i mean yeah i mean she's you know you asked me about what i was doing in between my hundreds i wonder what she's doing between what does she do between western and hard rock you know i mean does she sit around yeah, well, 30 miles a week or does she just get right back on it or not you know um no i mean i i when i spoke to her she she said that she would you know really respect the recovery process yeah. and i think it's a little bit like what you said carl it when you've when you've run something like Western States and won it, and then you've got Hard Rock, what was it, three weeks later? Yeah, it was three, I think. There's not really any training that you can do that is going to make you fitter, faster, stronger in three weeks. No. The only thing you're going to do is potentially injure yourself, potentially hamper your recovery. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty sure that she, you know, she probably had a really chilled week after Western moving. I'm, I'm sure that she was probably moving, mm-hmm. um, and then maybe just eased into, to some hiking with poles, um, because obviously poles would be a, a key thing at hard rock mm-hmm. and just getting that, that transformation, um, ready. Uh, and then of, of course, UTMB slots into, more of the hard rock approach Uh so yeah um but i i did message her after utmb uh and actually i was i was hoping to get her to come to costa rica um Uh, because she she, she'd said to me that she would really like to go but she said can you speak to me after utmb so i I sort of like left it a couple of weeks after utmb and pinged her a message and said hey you know no pressure. <laughs> you can come. You can come to Costa Rica and, and you know do whatever you want. You know you don't have to race. Just just come. Yeah. And she said, Ian, I need a break. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, right. Yeah. Yeah. So that I mean that's good as well because the fact that she needed a break. Right. Um, but she did. She did run a fifty miler just just last week with her mum, uh, and they finished. So that was really cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to, to be able to say, okay, I'm going to do that and not put my competitive, you know, helmet on or whatever, um, that's awesome. I think she's she's a unique individual and, uh, you know, really, really cool to see her dominate the way she has and her attitude, all that kind of good stuff is all, 
she's the full deal, full package, right? Um, yeah. It's nice to see that it's not so much about the the medal and the you know the buckle or whatever at the finish line. It's about just going out there doing what she loves to do and. I can respect that a lot. It's 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 a cool thing to watch. Now, if we talk about the men at Western State, you put your money on Young Money, yeah, and I put my money on Tom Evans, and I won. I think I think I mean I thought Dakota would nail it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but at the same time, he's got he's got the package to do that too. I think, um, but again, Tom had run Western like you know before. So he was, you know, a little bit more attuned with how the race pans out. And Dakota, I don't think he had before. So, um, but no, I mean, Tom ran a great, a great race just over, it was just over 14, right? Yeah. 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 Well, just over, right around 15 or something. It was whatever, but it was fast. <laughs> um, yeah. What question it was. It was sub 15. It was sub 15. I can't, I can't remember his exact time, but. Um, but that's fast. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, it's cool to see Tom, Tom to come back and, and, trying to go back to Western and win it because he was sort of deserving of it. He's had a lot of good results and he was just kind of like itching at the, you know, itching to win something bigger. And, uh, yeah, great to see him. You know, I was, you know, yeah, yeah. Dakota didn't pan out, but, but still, I mean, he's, you know, to me, he's Dakota's a little under the radar most of the time. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. Um, and, and you know, when you said about Dakota, I, I'd actually, in a way, sort of forgot that he was in the race. Right. And then, I, and then when you brought it up, I thought, oh yeah, actually, you know what, Dakota is a a risk. He is a he is yeah. a a potential. And um and and like you say, he he is slightly under the radar, and he shouldn't be. I mean, he he should be well on everybody's profile. And and certainly when the race unfolded, and and I was there this year following it. You know, Tom and Dakota were at the front creating the race. Right. Um, and, and there was nobody going to take first or second, um, off them. You know, they, they, they were running and it was very obvious that, that one of them was going to, to, to take the lead. Right. You know, the, the, the third place was too far behind. Um, and then there was just this point where Tom made the move. Um, and, and actually the move came because he was chasing Dakota down. Right. Dakota had left the aid station and got a slight gap. And Tom thought, I can't let him have a gap. So he caught him and he says, I just, he just let momentum take over and he carried on applying the pressure. Right. And that application of pressure was too much for Dakota. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then of course, well, we saw what happened is Dakota blue um and then the podium went away from him and 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 tom went on to to have a, a really convincing victory yeah. um but that you know that's 100 milers and, and i think when you're at the the front racing a 100 miler you know only too well carl is that the fine line of race management and self-management is is minuscule isn't it you yeah. only need to do one thing wrong and suddenly you're no longer on the podium. You might even not even be in the race if it goes really bad. I mean, you can feel so good for a while and then almost like flip a coin and it's like, ping, something, all of a sudden something happens, you know, and all of a sudden you don't feel so good. And then you lose all this time and it gets in your head. And, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, that's why I like the hundred because it's, there's so many more dynamics than just like how fast is this guy in the 50 K or even the 50 milers now are so fast. Like yeah. I love the dynamic of the longer races because you don't have to technically be the fastest guy in the field. You just kind of no. 
you, you just have to run well and, and, and get as much out of your body as you can and then just kind of see where you pan out. You know, a lot of the guys that are that, that have run Western, even the top 10, a lot of them are probably capable of running sub-15, but they really got to nail it, you know. Um, yeah. I was a little bit higher level this year. I mean, he was a little bit higher level than everybody else, so he's the guy that nailed it. And it was cool to see. I mean, there's a lot of performances going on nowadays that is starting to blow blow our minds, you know, not just the ultra scene, even like the, the marathons, you know, like road marathons. <laughs> guys are running. Guys are running. <laughs> I mean, Kipton runs two hours. I, yeah. I mean, what is that? You know, the guy that runs New York Marathon, he breaks the record. And it didn't even look like yeah. those guys are really out for a big race, but all of a sudden, the guy runs 205. I yeah. mean, on New yeah. York, you know, they call it, he'll call it a hilly course. So it's like the things are really changing. Um, you can blame super shoes all you want, but at the same time, you still got to be a runner. You still got to be able to move at that speed. And, and I was watching the footage of, 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 of that marathon. And, you know, the motorbike panning in, in that final half a mile. Oh, my God. And the speed. And Flying. he looked as though he just carried He could have carried on and carried on and carried on. And I'm thinking, this is, like, crazy. I mean, I think we will see sub two next year. I think so. I think, like, and it, whether it's kept him or not, but, I mean, when, like, you exactly look, when he came into that finish line, and his stride was so amazing. It was so smooth. Like it was like a Bernard Lagat smooth. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, just cruised in and he was, he went a sub 14. I mean, his five K's were in a low <laughs> yeah. 14. I think his fastest five K was the last five K, wasn't it? And it was under 14. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, good Lord. I mean, it's it, so, so, so fast. And you know, <laughs> I've never run that car of you. <laughs> Can't run two miles in fourteen minutes. <laughs> I mean, if I'm lucky, <laughs> yeah. But no, that is just mind blowing how fast they're. And the women too. Let's not forget them. Yeah. The women are running in fifteens yeah. now and two eleven something. A woman is going to go under two ten here eventually. Yeah, you know, yeah. no question. Yeah. Um, yeah, that 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 percentage gap has 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 reduced a little bit. Yeah. Um with with certainly with the 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 now the new world record for women. Um and so that percentage gap has dropped. Uh, Camille Heron did some yeah. really good stats yeah. stats and information and I th I I think she said it was now 8% mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. between the first man and the first woman and normally it's around about 10%. Yeah. Yeah. Um so so you know we're in we're in groundbreaking territory, but if you if you think of that course and that time, and then you put those same two runners on Berlin, mm -hmm. you know next year, yeah. where in theory it is the best and the fastest course, and and put one year improvement, you, you know the sub two for the men has has got to be. Certainly, within with a shout. I mean, it it takes everything aligning, doesn't it? You know, you need the perfect person on the perfect day. And the weather, with the, good. With the weather was was really yes. good in Chicago. I mean, it was it was you know fifty at the hottest or something like that. It was no wind. It was it was good. You know, it was prime. Yeah. for it was prime for a good time. So that yeah. I mean, but Chicago is still not the best and fastest course, is it? No, I don't. No, I think Berlin is isn't Berlin. Rotterdam is Rotterdam is kind of fast too. I think Berlin, Rotterdam, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, Berlin tends to be the course where you 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 really see the significant 
times go. Right. So so that time in Chicago, that or, or, or let's say that same effort on the Berlin course, I think probably would have been a sub two. Yeah, it's going to go under two. I mean, Kipchoge, Granit Kipchoge's thing when he won under two was was you know staged and all that, but it's he definitely proved that yes, it can be done. You know, yeah, it can be done. Yeah, so it will yeah. be. It's it's going to be the guy who does it. It's going to be a superhero. Um, but then there's going to be you know when you look at the list of of these these big time marathons and you look at you know they'll they'll list like maybe the ten or fifteen fastest guys and you look at all of them on there. And all their fastest times are like 205, 206, 204, 207, 203. It's like, you know, those were world records 20 years ago. And yeah, like yeah a list absolutely. Of guys that all, all, you know, that have all run 205 ish or something. And it's like, wow. Um, yeah. Whole different level. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun yeah. To watch. And, and you think of it, Carl, from a, I don't know, a trail running perspective. And um, if, if, you know, somebody's, um, at college and they're running athletics and they, they come to trail and you, you sort of say, you know, what's your marathon time? And they go 208 and you go, wow, that's like super quick. And they look at, look back at you and say, yeah, but you know, 208 is pedestrian now. It's like <laughs> if you run two, if you run two oh eight, you can be in the top fifty, <laughs> which is, which is why they're going to trail because, as a road runner, 208 is like so far off the pace. It's not even in the mix. It, they're, off, they're, off, no. they're off the front pack at mile four, and it's like then frightening. Disappear. It is frightening. Uh, but yeah, anyway, it's cool to see it. I'd need a bicycle. I would need <laughs> a bicycle. My bike. <laughs> what about UTMB? So, I mean, Courtney, Courtney <laughs> did the triple, which is pretty damn cool. Mm-hmm. Um,. The men's race was, was, of course, you know, as an American, you've got to be pretty damn happy. Finally, yeah. finally, we got, we got an American um, topping the podium and, a, and an American in second with Zach. And, and I, think, I think Zach and Jim were probably the, the perfect two people to yeah. be representing America in, in, in trail running. Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, Jim obviously spent all his time over in France training and really saying this is how i've got to train to do this and then zach you know zach is 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 probably the gutsiest runner of all um yeah it seems that way anyway he kind of flies under the radar a little too like dakota but but at the same time like for for two americans to to go one two is like i was super proud of that i'm super proud of jim for all his dedication and i speak with the guys at hoka too sometimes and like jim is just it's not that he's so amazing of a runner but he's it's his dedication and drive that, you know, that seemed to be pretty good, kind of not over the top, but like top level. And Zach is probably, even though he, in my opinion, anyway, he sort of slides a little under the radar. He's got to be training really hard and he's not afraid to fail. You know, he goes out and he goes hard and then it's like, he was right there. If Jim would have blew a little bit, Zach was right behind him. You know, he was only 20 yeah. behind him. I mean, that's yeah. not very far in a hundred miler, and uh, yeah, it, it was cool to him. I mean, I, I can't remember when I said this, but but when we've spoke about about UTMB and why you know the men have never quite performed at the the same level that American women have, and you know, there's a long history of American women who've showed <laughs> and paved the way for the men. 
I mean, it, you know, it goes back a long, long way with Chrissy Merle and and um, Nikki Kimball. Yeah, um, Nikki's name was was missing from my head, but but they, those two paved the way for the men. Uh, but the men never quite got it right, and there's always it's always been there about, you know. And and I remember saying, you know, Zach Miller has the potential to win this race, but it but it always somehow goes wrong because of the way that he he races. Tim Tollefson. Yeah. has done really really well jason schlaub had done well mm-hmm. um and of course jim kept going back and 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 i think all of us probably knew and and thought deep down one day jim will win this race mm-hmm. it just it just has to fall into place and i think i think the secret was after last year he decided this year you know what get rid of all the distractions yeah. you know don't put don't put a western states in there don't be tempted to do this don't do that just live in europe live the trail environment keep yourself relatively low-key come come to the race and and do your performance and and he did and and not only did he did he do that but he did a fantastic time as well so and that's always you know, he, too it's like i don't i don't like the big glitz and the glamour and all that stuff either it's like you know try to just kind of stand on the side a little bit and just kind of do your thing and not get so into the hype. Um, granted, I mean, y'all ball races, GMB and the hype in that town is out of control. And, and it's bonkers. bonkers <laughs> like you hear music a half a mile away. Dun, 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 you know, it's like, yeah. um, I mean, it's cool. And, and that's you like that. It's cool in that sense. But at the same time, there's so much hype going on with the lead runners that you've got to sort of tune that out a little bit. If you really want to focus on running the race and doing well, and it's been it's hard to it's hard to stay away from that, you know. Um, but you know, this time, you know, hope I didn't. I mean, I wasn't there this year. So I was there the year before, but but uh, it was is it's just so much better to me, in my opinion, to go to a race without people hounding you with with microphones and wanting an interview and wanting you to show your film or want you know whatever. Yeah, it's just too much in your head before the big race. It's better to just lay motionless maybe not lay motionless, but lay around and not worry about all these interviews and places that you have to be all day long. It's just, it's too much stress on your, in your head. Um, yeah. That have just raised. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the UTMB complex, isn't it? Is yeah. that, that I, I, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of talk and debate currently. And, and there has been ever since for, with UTMB with it, with its growth and its size. Um, and, and and particularly at the moment with UTMB expanding or by UTMB expanding now to I think the last count was forty races. Mm. You know, there's a lot of people sort of saying, Oh, you know, it's like getting too big, it's too much of this, too much of that. And and I think, yeah, okay. If that's not your thing, that's okay. But there is room for the by UTMB. And if you don't want it, you can go to Billy Dog's backyard and go and run loops if you want in a very very low key format if that's your thing great and i think i think there's no point in really being overly vocal if if the the by utmb concept is not popular it will soon fail because people won't won't race but as long as they keep putting i don't know a thousand two thousand three thousand people on start lines that's that's the message that 
it's here to stay. So, you know, I, I, I love from a working environment, I love going to small races and being maybe one of four media where I have my space, I can do my own thing. I don't really have any distractions. And equally, every now and again, not all the time, I like dropping in on a really big ultra where it's lots of razzmatazz, lots of noise, and, and it's a completely different environment. And I think, you know, it's quite good for me as a, as a working environment to have that mix of, of things. And I think from a runner, it's fine. You know, go and do your small, go and do the big. And, and you know, you can find your own sort of path in this sport. Well, it's like the local, it's like the local marathon or the New York marathon, you know, you have 50 exactly. before you have 200 or, you know, hundred or whatever. You know, I like the small race. I like the old, that's what I like. We'll say that I grew up running older, we'll call it that, but every race was small, right? Even Western state, I mean, hard rock, they called me in June. Hey, you go 60 people on the list. You're going to enter, <laughs> you know, like that was so different. Now there's plenty of room for the UTMB world series. I mean, it's, it's, if that's what it's going to be, that's fine. You know, it's, you run what you want to run. There's plenty of small races everywhere. And I can't tell you like in my quest to reach this hundred hundreds thing, you know, I'm not going to, yeah, my name's in the hat for hard rock and Western, but <laughs> you know, I'm not going to get in that. But at the same time, um, all these small races are great. I mean, I Eastern States 100 that I went to, even though I dropped there um, in August, that was a tactical error. <laughs> um, but um it was a cool atmosphere. You know, you meet all these people, you shoot the shit afterwards, you, you chat, it's nice, you know? Um, but then you go to the big race and, and you hear the sound and the dum 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 around town. And it's also pretty spectacular too. Um, it just depends what you like. You know, a lot of people like, you know, me and my wife's sisters, they love to do their, their Marine Corps marathon where there's 20,000 people and they run, you know, the Philly, where there's 9,000 people, whatever. They love that. And, you know, I'm like, I'm like, that's not for me, you know? But there's always going to be enough population that like both sides, I think. And yeah. it's going to survive. I think, I, you know, I don't think UTMB stuff's going to fail. I think they've grown very, very quickly on that, which kind of makes it look like they're into dominating the whole sport. But you're exactly right when you say, hey, if you don't want it, there's, I mean, the race saturation in North America is, is race every freaking weekend. And there's, yeah. a, there's so many hundreds that I see, you know, you see on just social media, Hey, I ran the, the Joe's loop, you know, 100 mile. And I'm like, where was that one? I don't even hear about this stuff. There's so yeah. many, so many races out there that, uh, you don't need travel to go to a hundred anymore. You know, you no, really no, no, no. don't. Um, and I think that's cool. You know, I mean, and I think Carl, if you're, if you're, if you were racing, um, a, a, a really, top level now um mm -hmm. and looking for your extra points or whatever then then you have to go to a certain type of race with a yeah. certain qual quality of lineup and and this doesn't really matter whether it's the skyrunner world series or the golden trail series or the by utmb they 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 all have the the entry criteria, the point systems, the reward systems, and and a good example is is the the Skyrunner World Series at the moment is probably in a little bit of a lower profile, and you know about this. You you've you know you've been involved with your race when it was in the Skyrunner World Series, and there was a debate not so long ago about prize money, 
um and people were saying like you know you 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 can do the buy utmb series but there is no like actual big significant prize money and then just what was it two weeks ago they had the final for the skyrunner world series in limoni and the male and the female winner both got 20,000 euros each bingo wow so well, that, that's so do, 20 grand right? that's big yeah that's big money yeah. For that's just one series. So there's choice out there. So if you know, if if money is the motivator and and you're doing by UTMB, you're actually probably in the wrong series. Yeah. <laughs> you need to oh, go right. you need to go and look somewhere else and look at Run Rabbit Run. I mean, you know, my I had the girl that won Tara Dower, I, I've been coaching Tara for years and she won and she she went home with seventeen thousand five hundred. Because for one race she had the team effort she had the team thing with jimmy elam who was second and i told her about that she didn't even know about that i told her and i made her try to tip me a little bit more but <laughs> but um <laughs> i'm just joking around but but at the same time you know 17 5 and that was that was a good game changer for her it was such a cool thing to see that that cash and you know that race they still donate forty thousand bucks to charity in a local charities in steamboat but that's still because you know, Fred and Paul, the two race directors, they don't, they don't take any money. They give it away. You know, um, that's rare in the sport these days, but, um, yeah. it, it's cool. To, I mean, that was, that was a good prize purse and, uh, that's going to continue, you know, um, it's just a different, the time of year it is like UTMB is a, is a, it's the biggest profile one. There's no question about it. Right. So the biggest yeah. guy is probably going to go there and that's understandable because there's more to it than just, you know, if you win UTMB, you're, you know, you're high on the pedestal, of course, with sponsorships and crap like that. And there's, set, exactly. there's incentives too for, you know, from sponsors too. So, um, you know, they're all good races. Uh, it's, it's cool to see a little prize money. Um, you know, I've always been a fan of the prize money. There's nothing wrong with that, Carl. I mean, at the end of the day, if, if, if you're running as a, a pro athlete and you're sponsored, the, the, there is a caveat that comes with being professional and 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 I think the thing is is with with trail running it it starts at a grassroots level that for a lot of people they just do it for fun and they they don't want the sport to change but you have to accept that when a sport grows and sponsorship comes in and brands come in it will change, certainly at least at the top level. I don't think it necessarily has to change too much for you at the grassroots level. I think I think the only downside is for, for races like UTMB or Western States, you can't get an entry or you have to go through a very complicated process to get an entry. Um, so, okay, that's one downside. But if, you, if you're a shoe brand and you're selling shoes, and you're paying an athlete to run in your shoes, then you want them to win the biggest thing in trail. And at, at the moment, that is either Western States, which is a small race, or UTMB, which is a huge race. And the visibility that comes from getting on the podium at those races is really important, A, for the athlete, and B, for the brand or brands. Um, and that's simple economics. <laughs> Like it or like it or not, it's economics and it's business. Yeah, economics one hundred and one, right there. I mean, it's it is business. I mean, if you look at the amount of 
dollars that are thrown into, you know, I don't know the numbers totally, of course, but with UTMP, the dollars that are just off the charts with, you know, Hoka being the sponsor of all this, all this stuff. I can't even imagine the dollar number of all that stuff that's going into it, but it's paying obviously for Hoka, it's paying the dues because now they reach the bees and the billions. Um, but that's, it's, it's good for brands to, to be on top of the podium like that. You want your athletes to do that. You know, I mean, that's, that's how it works. So why would they have athletes that are just trying to finish a hundred hundreds? <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm past my time, obviously, but, uh, you gotta have the, you gotta have the, if you really want to be there, you, you've got to put your foot in the door, you know, and, uh, get your brand out there and, and kind of see what happens. And every, you know, I don't know who that isn't Solomon, one of the big sponsors of Skyrunners world series. Is that right? I don't even know who they are, but in the sky series, um, um, Merrill is the, oh, okay. the main sponsor at the moment. Um, yeah. I mean, and and Golden Trails, well, it used to be all Salomon, and and now, now there's been a slight change in in Golden Trails. So I, you know, I'm not exactly sure whether Salomon is still the high profile sponsor of Golden Trails. Right. Um, Hoker at, at, by UTMB, um, and like going going back to what what you said about Hoker, um, you know, if if you think about the growth of that brand, you know. I, I first brought Hoka into the UK in 2008 mm-hmm. and people laughed at me and said, why are you bringing these clown shoes? <laughs> and, 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 you know, for two years, they, people would see them on the trails and they would laugh. You know, the original more yep. fat and the original Bondi B, you know, they were pretty damn big shoes. Oh, I've got a and people would, the house here. I can yeah. take a picture. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I've I've still got uh, I've still got a pair in a box, the original Mafat because I thought they will become an icon in time. Um and then of course Decker's got involved and and as you said, the the uh the the fiscal year last year for for Decker's Hoka was 1.41 billion with 520 million profit <laughs> from shoes. Billion, right? That is so off yeah. the chart, Ian. Um, so don't don't tell me that that trail running <laughs> is not a growing sport because when one brand makes five hundred and twenty-one million, <laughs> that is huge. Yeah, that is huge. It is so. I mean, when I run around and I just do the speed goats on the trail all the time, that I just like, I kind of smile and I let you know. It's like wow. If it, you know, the brand is, they've, they've expanded to not just shoes, they have clothing, they have other things. They expanded into the markets of like, you know, working environments with, I mean, there's no, that's a no brainer when you're, when you're a nurse or something like that, you're walking around all day long on your feet. I mean, I can't tell you when I, when I was working at Snowbird, I was wearing the old Montreal Vitesse and this was a long time, long, long time ago, but they were soft. Yeah. They were kind of softer. They weren't big clunky shoes, but they were softer. And I tell you, tell you what, I mean, it was a lot better than walking around in those crappy shoes, you know, on those cement floors. I mean, it's just kind of a no-brainer to wear the softer. One hundred percent. And I can give you a real-time equation to that now in Norway, in Oslo, in Oslo, where you have cafes, restaurants. There's an abundance of them. Mm-hmm. Black Cliftons. Right. Everybody wears black Cliftons, and. 
I, I, I kill myself walking around laughing and I look at all these people's feet and I'm not joking. I, I reckon 90 something percent are in black Clifton's and if they're nurses or medical staff, they're in white ones. Right. And, and everywhere. And it's, it, it is absolutely phenomenal how, how the marketing I don't know how they've done it. You know, I don't know whether people have just sort of like there's maybe somebody in a in a restaurant who runs and says, "Oh, have you tried have you tried Hoka's?" Because you know they do a black pearl, which would be really nice with your outfit. And before you know it, everybody's wearing them. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether Hoka have targeted this or what, but but the the success in Norway in in the the people who are working in jobs where they're on the feet all day, Hoka is by far the most popular shoe. Yeah, you know it's funny too. If if you talk to Nico Nermuv, you know, one of the two founders, yeah, he he said something the other day. Um, this was a while back. He's like, he's like, you said brought the clown shoes to the billion dollar mark. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, classic French accent. And it's just like I, I laughed when he said that. I'm like, you know. When I first showed up at that race at Zane Gray with those things on and everybody looked at me kind of funny, I was yep. thinking to myself, like, well, who knows where this is going to go? But to think that was only 2000, maybe nine or 10 or something, um, it's just yeah. it's just a big wow. You know, like yeah. not many brands uh, get to a billion in 12 years, 13 years. It's just no crazy. No, not at all. And, and Carl, I think that the Speed Goat is the biggest selling trade shoe. You know, I've said that to friends. I said it's probably the most the most popular shoe on the planet at the moment for trails. But I can't, for trails, for compete. sure. But I, you know, I see them. Nick, I see them everywhere. I, I yeah. was at having dinner at uh, the Array Brewery over here in, in Hard Rock, and the guy, the host at the thing, was wearing speed goats, and I'm like, "Hey, nice." <laughs> and I'm just like, "He's like, huh?" And then Cheryl had. I, I usually stay kind of quiet on the side, but. Cheryl's like, George, do you know that this is actually the guy that they're named after? And I'm like, and he's like, really? I'm like, I'm just the regular guy. I'm looking for a burger and a fry. <laughs> um, but it's just like they're, I mean, I, I see him every day, Ian, when I go for a run. When we you know when there's a few yeah. people around. It's just absolutely nuts. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, what can I say? I mean, that's, I'm so psyched that I have what I have now because of that. And it's like. Well, Carl. I hope you get a dollar for every pair that is sold. <laughs> well, if I got a dollar for every pair, I'd probably live in a million, you know, multiple million. Exactly. Dollars. Yeah. But, I uh, mean, I mean, I mean, it, uh, you really need to go back and renegotiate. <laughs> well, it, 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 let's just say that I'm doing okay with the shoe. Um, yeah, I'm sure you are. <laughs> yeah, but it's, but it's. I'm sure you are. I'm, I'm really. It was really. That conversation, the idea behind it was a small conversation at the outdoor retailer show in Salt Lake one year with Jim Van Dyne, who was at, at the time was the president with Hoka. And we talked about it for five minutes about the idea of having a shoe named Speedgoat after me. And here he we said, are. yes, <laughs> he said he did. He's like, oh, that's a pretty good idea. And before you know it, there was drawings on the board and it was, and it came out, you know, and and that was just like you know, maybe 15 years before that, I'm shooting the shit with some of my friends back in Salt Lake and we used to start running trails. I'm like, wouldn't it be cool if you had a shoe named after you? And this is kind of when, when Jordan, you know, Michael Jordan had a shoe. So it was kind of yeah. the same idea. And it was like, and here we are now, 25, 30 years later, whatever it is. Um, I'm the guy that has a shoe named after him. It's like, I, it's cool. Blows my mind. I don't know what to say. You know, it's really an honor. When I see people walking around, it's an honor to see that. And, 
you know, what can I say? I, I don't know. It's uh, it's been really cool. They've been really nice to me, and it's I have. If I ever complain about something, like I say, just smack me because it's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> true, I, true. And, and and you know what, Carl? The shoes are going to last longer than you eventually. Probably, <laughs> but that's okay. Because <laughs> every year, yeah. So it's it's okay. Um, I I hope the shoe kind of like the Nike Pegasus, right? There's still a Pegasus out there. Yeah. Um, and even uh, Mike McManus at Hoka said, you know, there's a, there's still a Stan Smith. Adidas, I think, still makes a Stan Smith tennis shoe, right? Um, that was another named um, athlete. And the Jordan, of course, is going nowhere. Um, so yeah. it, I think it's just it's to be in that class. I mean, not really that class with those other guys, but but it's like it's it's a it's a big wow factor to me. It's 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 rad. It's it's really cool. Yeah. It's very cool. Very, very cool. Well, we should go to an interview um, on this show. I've actually got Andy Blow um, from Precision Hydration, uh, and he's here to talk to me all about how you keep yourself hydrated and keep the right electrolytes going in, particularly when you're running ultras and multi-day. Um, and after I'd actually done this interview, Carl, Andy said to me, you need to say hello to speed goat for me do you remember him i remember the name a little bit yeah but um yeah i think he saw you or you you were together at a red bull event um several years back and he was there doing hydration um talking about how you balance your electrolytes and and you were obviously there but he said that i had to say hello to you so i'm doing my job nice. that's the red's very cool it's, it's cool to remember those names and the people time goes by so fast it's like I mean, I was with Red Bull in 2016, or I think, or 2017 was probably my last year with them, or 2018. But it's been it's been five or six years already, you know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Time flies. Yeah. Okay, here's the interview. This is Talk Ultra. This week, I've got Andy Blow from Precision Hydration talking to me. Andy is a sports scientist with a degree in sports and exercise science from the University of Bath. He's pretty much an expert on sweat, dehydration, cramping, and so perfect person to talk to about this subject for the Talk Culture audience. Andy, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Ian. been uh, listening to your podcast for a long time and really... I'm really pleased to get an invite to chat to you. Yeah, well, it, it, it's surprising it's taken so long, actually, because uh, the one thing that ultra runners are always, you know, a bit on the line about is the the fantastic training and and sort of like planning, and then things like nutrition and hydration tend to get sort of like left by the by, and it's something that. Some really think about, but I think a lot of people just leave it to chance. Um, and you, you're the perfect person to say, well, no, actually, this is as important as every run that you do. Um, so first of all, what's it like being involved as a scientist in the sports industry? And, and how much have things changed, say, in the last 10 years? Yeah, it's, it's for me, it's a pretty much a lifelong passion really certainly human performances and and i suppose my interest in nutrition um hydration in particular and, and sports science 
has evolved quite a lot over the last 20 years because when I was competing as an athlete I was I, I did a little bit of ultra running but I wouldn't have called myself in any way a, a sort of ultra runner but I did do a lot of um of, of triathlon Ironman other long distance racing often in the heat and I learned a lot the hard way about what happens when you don't get your hydration and nutrition quite right I ended up in hospital a couple of times I ended up with hyponatremia which is probably something we can talk a bit more in depth about as this conversation develops yeah so for me it's always been it started off as a very personal passion project to understand what was going wrong with my body when i raced in some of these hot and particularly hot and humid conditions and then it's really i guess it's for me it's turned into a career first as a sports scientist working to coach and support athletes and then with the development of precision fuel and hydration as a business to to sort of um uh yeah to to develop services and products that help athletes to avoid the kind of issues that I had and and it has definitely changed pretty dramatically in the last 20 years partly I think because of the explosion in interest in doing ultra long events both in triathlon cycling and running and and also I think in the fact that there are so many more resources available to people now where you can get information that it's it's gone from 20 odd years ago when I was starting to research this for myself there were very very few sources of accessible information there were some internet forums and those kind of things obviously podcasts didn't exist there wasn't a lot of audiobooks and this yeah. kind of thing and nowadays there is an absolute like mountain of information out there and, and I think that the the job has changed from like finding information in the first place to actually filtering through an absolute torrent of information to find out what's actually factually correct and relevant to you yeah i mean my background's a little bit similar to yours cyclist and and triathlete and then merged my way into ultra running and and i think back to my triathlon cycling days and and i i was doing nothing in terms of, of replacing electrolytes i was drinking but other than maybe a noon tablet um, which I thought was adequate. I wasn't really doing anything. And I think back, you know, particularly, as you say, when you race in a hot place, the the differences in, in the gains that you could have had in your performance if you'd have been a little bit more savvy is, is pretty significant. Um, so just as a benchmark and i know this is impossible because it will it will depend on um the the size of the person the gender etc cetera, etc cetera. but but what are the types of performance gains one can expect if you get your hydration right and your fueling right yeah i i think that is a super difficult question to answer in one in directly but if i go a slight indirect route and if i say i think that all endurance athletes who are serious, as you pointed out, are very motivated and very typically very adept at training. That's what we all do. It's it's the it's the one non-negotiable. If you're going to be an endurance athlete, you have to put the the miles, the hours, the yards in with training, and and ultimately, it, how well that training goes, and how well you, well you adapt to that training will set the ceiling or the limit to where you're best performances can be you're basically you get fit to a point and you can express that fitness in a race if you can express it to 100 percent, you'll get the best out of yourself the role of nutrition and hydration is to is to sort of help manage the gap between that ultimate best expression of your fitness and best performance and where it will deteriorate to Mm -hmm. if you screw it up with your nutrition and hydration it's not you can't gain 
more performance in new fitness than you've got. It's these are the fuel and hydration is not a performance enhancing drug. No. It stops it stops your performance degrading from its 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 best limit. So and I think the longer potentially hotter when you bring in hydration and the harder the race is, the more your performance the more ability there is for your performance to drop off. So if you if you take the extreme ends of what I guess people in your audience are most interested in, if we say that the entry level for what we're talking about today is marathon running and then we go beyond that. Yeah we all know that whilst it's prudent to eat and drink the right things to get around a marathon, it's, it's very, very humanly possible to run a decent marathon eating and drinking nothing. Yeah. It's definitely not optimal, but we've, we Ron Hill ran a 207 or whatever it was, yeah, exactly. uh, nil by mouth, you know, <laughs> so it, it's doable if you're extremely fit and if you get a load of other things right. But if, on the other hand, no one runs a hundred miles with inadequate, no one runs 100 miles really well with an inadequate fuel and hydration intake because the longer it gets the less substrate the less fluid the less electrolyte you've got stored in the body that you can like eke out over the distance so the more important in in replacing the correct ratio of all that stuff becomes in order to maintain your performance if that makes sense yeah absolutely so 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 the gap when you get to really long races between getting your nutrition right and wrong is as binary as like probably is is like finishing and not finishing and certainly the difference between winning and and finishing walking and those sorts of things yeah now i want to emphasize the hydration element of what you do in this podcast but i do want to ask two questions which i think are relevant is the first one is the food that you eat how does that impact on your hydration And the second part of that question is in long distance events and particularly, say, multi-day, something like Marathon de Sable, where you're on restricted calories and can't just eat whatever you want. How does that impact on hydration as well? Good questions. Uh, I think the, the obvious one to start with is that when you start to get into longer races really long ultra distance races people often bring in a component of real food rather than say pre-packaged nutrition and snacks into their armory yeah and real food especially things which are natural things like especially fruits vegetables all that sort of stuff have a relatively decent water content and therefore if you eat say you know i've seen ultra runners a lot of them favor some watermelon or some you know, some soft fruits and some things as part of their regime. Mm-hmm. There's there's a small contribution that that makes to overall hydration. Yeah. The other the other interaction you get between hydration and fueling is that there's a there's a balance to be struck whereby you can let's say you get your energy intake exactly right. If you fail to get your hydration intake cor- correct as well, you might struggle to absorb and assimilate the, the foods and the calories that you're eating, and kind of vice versa to an extent like you can get your hydration right but if you don't get adequate energy in it kind of doesn't matter that you, you need there's, there's we always talk to athletes about focusing very very squarely on three things when you're racing an endurance race so we call them the three levers of nutrition performance there's you need to get the amount of carbs per hour right you need to get the amount of fluid per hour right for you and the amount of sodium per hour if that's relevant for you yeah. as well as an electrolyte and it's the and it's it's the interaction and the balance of those three that that really matter and where they come from 
isn't actually so important as getting the right amounts of each. So if you're getting a, if you are using a large contribution of real food and fruit and stuff, which is bringing some water with it, that might, that might slightly dial down the amount of water you need to drink or sports drink you need to drink. It's just, it's all, you've just got to be focused and mindful of the fact it's all about those kind of three levers and pulling them correctly. Sounds good. Um, Now, hydration and being hydrated. Um, What is the simplest way to explain what a good hydrated athlete is? So your body is kept in check. All of its vital systems and processes are kept in check by a system called homeostasis, which is probably not a new word to the vast majority of your listeners and homeostasis basically is the balancing of physiological systems to keep them within working order so examples of systems that are homeostatically controlled are things like your core body temperature that resides within a relatively narrow band um, your um, your acid base balance is regulated in the body and so is your water and electrolyte levels and in the body you've got kind of two principal reservoirs of fluid and electrolytes you've got the majority of it resides inside the body's cells and is referred to as intracellular fluid and then you've got you've got extracellular fluid which resides outside of the body's cells which is a mixture of fluid which is called interstitial fluid which is just kind of in between everything and you've got a, a decent obviously large reservoir of extracellular fluid in your blood which is your the plasma part of your blood which gives your blood its volume yeah which is obviously critical for performance and when someone the, the scientific term for being optimally or normally hydrated is eu hydration which is eu hydration and obviously as you become um, dehydrated as you lose water you become hypohydrated and in certain circumstances you can also be become waterlogged or hyperhydrated or overloaded with fluid and there's two i guess there's two kind of things at play one is the total volume of there's a total volume of fluid plus minus within your body that your body is that requires to function optimally and then there's how that fluid is split between the intracellular and extracellular compartments to make sure that everything's in balance and your body the principal one of the principal mechanisms and tools that that your body uses to regulate all of that are the kidneys the kidneys are are the the most influential driver of how much fluid you absorb retain how much you pee out and then also there's a level of obviously there's a level of transfer that goes on between extracellular and intracellular fluid depending on the state of the body at a certain time so hydration is about having the right amount of fluid and electrolytes on board and having that stored in the right places right so in simple terms it's about being hydrated uh, and maintaining a, a good level of minerals which are electrolytes correct yeah now key here is you mentioned hyper and hypo there's a massive difference between the two and it's very very important that runners do not confuse the two because um i've seen it happen in the past where some of the 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 visual symptoms of hyper can lead somebody to think that somebody is hypo and if you do the wrong thing it can well it can result in death so so Mm. just be clear for the listeners the difference between hyper and hypo so if you're, we'll start with hypo, which is what colloquially people would refer to as like being dehydrated. Yeah. So if you're low on body fluid, 
that can that will usually manifest itself in in an athlete in terms of being thirsty maybe having low blood pressure and being you know sort of like feeling dizzy when they stand up or or disorientated um they'll that's because their blood volume will have dropped so the amount of blood they've got circulating is reduced because you sweat from your blood plasma that's where your, your sweat leaches from it reduces your blood volume it reduces your function in extremes you can start to look dehydrated you know people look gaunt and they yeah. look pinched because they're, they're they're losing because their body this it's essentially like how a bodybuilder looks in competition where they're they've stripped themselves of water and you can see all the veins and you can see their bone cheekbones and all this because they're they've lost so much fluid and they're starting to look um look dehydrated and so if you're if you are low on fluid dehydrated obviously the corrective mechanism there is either drinking if it's not too severe or in more severe cases if there's medical intervention often what they'll do is put you on drip Mm -hmm. to to rehydrate to boost your plasma volume quickly and get you back up to speed if on the other hand you're hyperhydrated you're overhydrated often um this is less talked about it's becoming more talked about luckily but people will will start to exhibit some some slightly different symptoms which would be like potentially some puffiness and swelling in their extremities um that's because if you overdrink plain fluid or certainly low sodium fluid um there's a, there's a danger that fluid will accumulate in your peripheries because you you obviously take fluid in you absorb it through the gut into the bloodstream. If that risks diluting the blood sodium levels down too low, normally what the body does, it causes you to pee out any excess. But if you either drink more than you can pee out or when you're exercising, you have a hormonal rise in hormones that stop you from weeing, then that fluid, fluid accumulates and the body has to shunt it out of the bloodstream and into the cells and into the peripheries in order to kind of store it and make sure that it's not taking up it make, make sure it's not over diluting the blood so you become waterlogged or overblown with fluid and to your point um, your your very astute point is that sometimes it, it's not always totally easily easy to recognize if someone is because this swelling can be quite subtle and if someone sometimes with hyponatremia even people can get a dry mouth report feeling thirsty there's a big assumption that if you find someone who's in a bit of trouble who's not who's not because um, it can affect your brain if your brain swells up they might not be very cognitively aware or they might not be making sense they could be they could be suffering from an overload of water but if they're diagnosed as actually being dehydrated yep. then they get given the wrong fluid intervention either told to drink a lot more or even worse they put bags of fluid in them of the inappropriate concentration it can make the condition worse what what I've seen in the last 15 years is a massive increase in the awareness of like event medical teams and other people that work supporting athletes at events in understanding both sides of those conditions. So, for example, at the Hawaii Ironman, where we do quite a bit of work with athletes, the um, athletes get weighed before the race so that if they get pulled over in the race for a medical intervention, one of the things that if they suspect electrolyte and fluid imbalances they weigh them again to see whether they've gained or lost weight because that's a huge a huge determinant on what the on what the protocol is um so yeah understanding being as an athlete 
understanding the nuance of the difference between it's more than a nuance this the massive difference between like being low on fluid and electrolytes and being overloaded with them either one or the other is is critical and if if that explanation is either a bit if people have found it a bit confusing or it's not entirely clear we there's actually a blog on our one of the most well-read blogs on our website is called what's hypernatremia and how to avoid it and it's sort of targeted athletes so they can always you know go to precisionhydration.com and look that up and have a read if if they want a more a deeper dive into that yeah i'll I'll provide a link of that in in the show notes so that people can access it um yeah going back to what you were saying there i mean i remember actually not that long ago um where we had races like the great north run comrades in particular was a was a classic example where the message was it's going to be hot drink 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 but there was no (laughs) there was no caveat to if you're going to drink you have to put some electrolytes back in and and of course comrades and the great north run both experienced significant amounts of fatalities because of it was the sort of the right message but not enough information so this is where you come in um and and the the electrolyte confusion that a lot of people have now you do uh, as a service to your clients, you you do a sweat test, which gives people really important information of of how much sodium they're losing when they sweat. And now, of course, it, it's more complex than that. But but just give an indication, Andy, of of what an athlete must consider and think about when they are partaking any any event even in training how they must look at their hydration and keeping electrolytes in balance and what are those electrolytes because it's not just sodium is it no that's 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 all all good points um i guess starting with that i would say when when you're considering hydration needs for yourself you've got to look at three or four distinct things so two of them are sort of physiological the first one that you've mentioned is um well actually i'll start with another the other one the the first one is how much do you sweat so we all know just from if you've ever been to a spin class in the gym or run on a treadmill next to someone there are vastly big differences in sweat rates between individuals you know some people barely sweat some people blow as the saying goes and other people really really sweat buckets and so and having a level of understanding of what your sweat rate is like you know how many milliliters or liters of fluid you lose per hour is really really useful athletes can do that very simply and very cheaply by weighing themselves before and after some training sessions or races to get a handle on fluid loss because one conveniently one kilo of fluid loss equates to roughly one liter of fluid lost in sweat yeah and um if you if you do enough runs in enough different conditions at enough different intensities you can start to build up a picture of what your range of sweat rates are like i i do that frequently myself both out of personal and professional interest and you know this year i did an interesting experiment where i ran i braved the cold earlier in the year and ran in the best in shorts for an hour with um, at four degrees Celsius on a nice, bright, clear day early in the year, yeah. I ran for one hour and I lost about, I think it was about 250 or 300 milliliters of sweat, even running at a pretty decent pace. So I was mm-hmm. like visibly sweating, but it was, it was pretty light. I then waited until I was in Kona a few weeks ago for the Ironman 
and I went for a run in the hottest part of the day in the energy lab and sweated out and did the same kind of running, the same kind of clothing and essentially sweated out something like 1.6 or 1.7 litres in an hour. <laughs> so, there's a, you know, there's a big, there's a big, big difference. Yeah. And in more extreme conditions and when I've been fitter and able to run harder, I've actually managed to push out well over two litres an hour in sweat. Right. So, understand you're, you're a heavy what sweater. your personal range is. I am definitely a heavy sweater, yeah. Um, the average... I'm in that category as well. <laughs> yeah. Have you have you measured yours? On no, I've not. But but the thing was, is the last time I did a, a test is I did a similar thing, but it was I did mine over two hours and, and I lost yeah. um, I lost 3.2 litres. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so 1.6 an hour, which yeah. is definitely in the heavier camp. Yeah. We would typically say it's very... People... I, I'm always hesitant to like go on too much about averages because kind of averages mean nothing when you don't know the extremes. But mm-hmm. if people do want to know, think, oh, what is about normal? I would say anything, if you're running reasonably hard, anything around about, you know, 800 mil to 1200 mil an hour is kind of in the reasonably normal camp for a fit athlete. Yeah. Um, if you go, but we routinely, I've seen athletes up at three, 3.5 liters in a single hour. I've also seen athletes that barely sweat. Yeah, you know that we're talking about measuring droplets rather than cupfuls. Yeah. So the, the the human range in that is pretty wide. Yeah. Um, and there are, there are there are implications, probably not good implications, if you're too far away from the middle in mm-hmm. terms of you know either not being able to cool well enough because you're not sweating enough if you don't sweat much. So thermal regulation becomes the problem. Yeah. Or on the flip side, obviously, if you're sweating out three and a half liters now, you really do struggle to replace enough of it. Yeah, and and over time losses can be catastrophic. Yeah. So first one, understand your sweat rate to a lesser or greater extent. And I would go so far as to say, you know, I'm a I'm in, in this sort of thing. I'm a numbers guy. I like to know my numbers. But yeah. honestly, what you really need to know is you need to have a very strong sense of roughly what it is. You don't need a three decimal place number here. No. You know, you just need to know roughly where you sit. The I, next one can, is can I just can I just come yeah. in there? Sorry. Because um, I just think there's one point that that's important to clarify is that if you are going out for an hour in the in the heat of the day, and you know you double your sweat rate, you you actually can get away without replenishing water or electrolytes because it's just an hour. It might it might not exactly. be ideal, but you can get away with it. And I think the point is that that what I want to make sure is is we clarify here is that the impact of this in ultra is huge because you exactly. cannot get away with it once you start going past the hour and two hours, three hours, four, five, six, seven, whatever it is. Yeah, you're totally right. And that's what we're doing there is we're getting a number which we're effectively plugging into either a physical or a mental model to go, okay, if I'm losing a litre an hour at this rate of running in these conditions, what does that look like when I extrapolate it out to eight or nine hours? Yeah. You know, and and that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's exactly what we do with the athletes we work with is it's, we work on a sort of predictive algorithm. And some of the algorithms we use are getting a bit more sophisticated because, if we take Western States as a as an example, because I was there crewing with someone earlier this year, you know, it starts in the free, literally in the snow, yeah. you know, and then, so you've got to model out what those first few hours look like on that basis versus what it's going to look like when it's 35 degrees in, and you're running through, you know, the sort of mile 60, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so there's those, there's those rhythms of it. 
Yeah, and another question. Sorry, uh, it, uh, it, it just right. it just fuels my mind so that we try and clarify for the runners. So let let's say, for example, we have a figure of optimal yeah. hydration. We'll talk yeah. about the electrolyte side of things as a different conversation, but let's just say fluid, and and let's yeah. let's say you're losing one point five liters per hour because it's hot, but yeah. You can't get that much fluid from aid stations or because of the type of race you're doing. Say, for example, Marathon de Sabre, where you're on restricted yeah. water supplies. What is the strategy then? Good question. So the strategy, the, the aim of the strategy or any plan that you have should be to replace an adequate amount or the best amount that you can without... so sorry i'm going to qualify that as well by saying the aim always is not to replace 100 percent of your losses yeah as long as you start well hydrated as you've pointed out we have we have effectively a reservoir of fluid in the body and we can tolerate a level of dehydration scientists athletes coaches whatever will all argue on exactly what that level of dehydration is that we can tolerate before performance suffers and there's a heavier emphasis on individualization there but i think there is we could at least say there's a consensus on it being somewhere between about two and five percent of your body weight if you've lost less than about two percent of your body weight you're probably fine from a hydration point of view if you've lost more than about five percent most people are going to suffer quite a lot okay Um, few exceptions outside so there's that kind of window so what you're ultimately trying to do is you're trying to manage the situation so you can get enough fluid in in order that you can keep your body weight, keep the body weight loss down to a level that's acceptable. Okay. And that's going to be dictated by practically how much fluid can you get hold of. And it's going to be, um, and it's also going to be heavily influenced by how much your body, how much your gut can tolerate taking in. Yeah. No, not a lot of people can drink 1.5 liters an hour. No, that's, I've seen it done, but it's not, is not routine. A lot of people struggle once you get running, once you get past about seven or 800 milliliters an hour. Yeah. So it, it sort of, it requires a bit of trial and error. And people often ask, what's the optimum? If you're losing, if you're not replacing a hundred percent, what percentage should you be replacing? And again, that's, that's one of those sound, a question that sounds simple, but it's frustrating to answer quickly because it depends on what the total amount of hours and the total amount of sweat loss are the the longer you go and the more dramatic your overall fluid loss is the closer you need to get to 100 percent replacement yeah because um the fraction of of not being close to that becomes catastrophic if you're only racing for two or three hours it might be that you could get away with replacing 25 or 30 percent of your losses because you just needed to take the edge off and make sure that you're not dropping below that critical threshold yeah i mean one interesting point here is is that if you take any race um and let's let's just say 100 miles for example um aid stations don't change um for the whole field now yeah western states somebody might win it in 14 hours somebody might finish in 30 hours 
but they yeah. get no more accessible <laughs> water than, mm. than, than from the first to the last. So this is significant in what you're saying here is that how you balance that and, and, and does a slower runner need to carry more because they're out there longer? Yeah, again, it's a good question and one with a little bit of nuance in the answer in that, yeah, globally, generally, you'd expect someone who's out there for 25 hours to need to drink more in total than an, than an equally, a physiologically equal person who took 14 hours yeah. in terms of you know, sweat rate. The difference, the, the one small difference, one small but significant difference is that the guys that are, and girls that are at the front end running 14, 15, 16 hours are running very fast. So their metabolic heat production is much higher. So their sweat rate is higher. Oh, yeah, so often yeah. we see the highest fluid requirements per hour in those individuals. When you, get, when you go to the other extreme and get people who are majority hiking, Obviously, if it's hot, they'll sweat, but their metabolic heat production is less, so their, to- so their total sweat losses per hour might not be anywhere near as high as people who are running at five minutes a K. Yeah. So there, there is a bit of a balancing act there. So, and, and typically, where we've seen more cases of people getting hyponatremia, it's actually been in slower finishes rather than faster finishes. Yes. Because faster finishes are more at risk of heat stroke and dehydration, um, because of fluid losses and metabolic heat production, slower finishes are more in danger of hyponatremia because they've got longer to d- drink yes. and, and sometimes <laughs> they drink, drink more. more than yeah. they need to. Yeah. So they, they go in that direction. Perfect. Um, but yeah, that's, that's just an interesting aside on that. Yeah. Great. Okay. I, I distracted you from your thought process, but I think it was important to, to cover those points. No, it's all it's all good, and I think yeah, that that sort of that's a good that's probably a good initial stab at like sweat rate and volume of sweat replenishment. It's highly individual. It's going to be driven by your physiology, the environmental temperature, and how long you're out there for, yeah. and now, which is sort of a function of the intensity of yeah. how fast you're going. Um, electrolytes. If you start with the physiology to begin with, where there might be say where where the least sweatiest person that we test might be five times less sweaty than the most sweaty person in terms of sweat volume, there's an even greater range in terms of electrolyte loss. So the average human being on this planet sweats out about 900 milligrams of sodium in every litre of their sweat. And through our own testing, plus all of the reams of published data that's out there, we know that some people lose as little as 200 milligrams of sodium in a litre of their sweat. So their sweat is extremely dilute and their body's extremely frugal at holding on to electrolytes when they sweat. Mm-hmm. At the other end, we, we've seen numerous people with over 2,000 milligrams of sodium per litre of sweat. And then, so there's like a 10 or 11 fold variance in the sodium concentration of their sweat. Right. Um, it might be worth a quick digression at this point into why sodium and why not other electrolytes principally. And that's because sodium is the main electrolyte that's influential in balancing extracellular fluid. It's the main electrolyte that you find in your, in your blood plasma. So it's the one, because your sweat is drawn from your blood plasma, your, your sweat tends to be high in sodium lower in the other electrolytes like potassium, calcium, magnesium. Potassium is really high in intracellular fluid, but you don't leach a lot of it out in your sweat. So there is an argument that replacing, well, all all electrolytes need replacing. You can't manufacture them in the body. So as you lose them, 
you know, you need to replace them. But when you're sweating heavily, sodium comes right to the top of the list as the most important because yeah. it's the one that you could potentially rinse through a day's supply of in two hours if you're a heavy sweater. Yeah. Um, so when you, um, and, and I think based on the fact we now have established that people sweat at vastly different rates and if people lose sodium at different rates, we can start to, we can start to categorize people. If you imagine like a, uh, if you imagine a, a cross, a graph, which is drawn in a cross. So it's like an X and a Y axis, the intersect in the middle. Yeah. And there's four quadrants. It, it provides four quadrants in each corner. And you've got like people in the top right hand corner would have a very high sweat rate and a very high sweat sodium concentration. Okay. And then on the bottom left, you'd have people with a low sweat rate and a low sweat sodium concentration. Okay. And then above them, you've got people with a high sweat rate, but a low sodium concentration. And then in the bottom corner, you've got people with a uh, low sweat rate, but a high sweat sodium concentration. And everyone resides somewhere on this graph. You know, and I'm one of those people who's very massively skewed towards the, the up and right bit because I have a high sweat rate. I lose 1,800 milligrams of sodium per litre of sweat, so I've got a very high sweat sodium concentration. Yeah. And we're in that camp that I'm, I'm a member of the club, if you like, that needs to replace aggressively a lot of fluid and electrolytes because those losses are so high. Depending where you sit on that spectrum, that will have a massive determination on how pre-planned and aggressive or not you need to be with fluid and electrolyte replacement in certain races yeah and so ultimately the the, i mean to to sort of like clarify your points here is this this key information we're individual and there is no generic Mm -hmm. advice that can be applied to everybody because we're all gonna sweat at different rates and lose electrolytes and sodium at different rates. And so therefore finding out how you function is really key. Definitely. And one thing I want to point out here for anyone who's kind of read any of the academic literature or is, is you know, in, into that side of things, there's a lot been written about all of these subjects and there's a lot of really good stuff been written, but with, with a lot, with a lot of academic research, there's a lot of emphasis on, averages there's a lot of emphasis on what you know if we take someone if we essentially take a group and look at the average sweat concentration the average sodium loss um, average sweat loss we can start to you know figure out what an average replenishment regime looks like and there's some value in that because it does give a starting point for what what look like plausible numbers for for the average person the, the mythical kind of average person yeah what it doesn't do, though, is it tends to exclude either because people with very extreme sweat and sodium losses get excluded from laboratory trials and things like that, or because they're a bit rarer and they just don't necessarily pop up when you do a hydration study on, even if you do a decent sample size of 25 athletes, there's no guarantee you're going to get some real outliers in there. Um, you, you end up with a bit of a, a skewed view, and this was my personal issue with all of this is that i'm very skewed on this in terms of my physiology is is in the more extreme end of things and so anything approaching generic advice of fluid and electrolyte replacement is not even touching the sides for me no so i think i think it's really emphasizing to people that exactly what you said we're all individuals and we have to be aware that that 
we could be a very, very long way. We might be totally fine with average advice, or we might be totally fine in some cases with paying little very attention to what we drink and how much electrolyte we paste because our bodies are very frugal with losing those elements. But we can't expect that. We've got to we've got to do some research. We've got to do some personal scientific investigation, a little bit of trial and error to decide whether we fit in that normal category or whether we're a, a bit of an outlier. Yeah. How much does um, day-to-day life impact on our hydration and sodium levels? And, and I'm, I'm saying this to flag that, that I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate how much sodium they eat they take in through just a normal diet um particularly yeah. if you're going to drift towards anything that's processed salt levels increase dramatically and that yeah. obviously impacts on everything that you're talking about so can you can you just touch on that as well yeah definitely um so going back to the fact that um so that certain things are homeostatically controlled the level of sodium in your body, a lot of it is found, it's, it's found in your body's tissues, it's stored there and it has functions there, but a lot of it's found and held in your extracellular fluid. So your blood's very salty and every litre of your blood is about 3,600 milligrams of sodium, so, which, is, which works out to be about 140 millimoles per litre. And that's really tightly regulated. So all of the time your kidneys are working flat out to make sure that your sodium levels in your blood are, are constant. So even if you eat a really high salt diet or even if you eat a really low salt diet, your blood salt levels will be about the same. They'll be practically identical between healthy people. And the reason for that is that every time you pee, if you eat a high salt diet, you flush out loads of sodium. And if you eat a low sodium diet, your kidneys are very, they, they work very hard to reclaim sodium and they don't allow any to escape. So all, so if you eat lots of sodium, then you don't kind of build up a huge reservoir of it or anything like that. It's not like, it's not even like muscle glycogen where you can really, really solidly load up on it or anything. You essentially exist in this like equilibrium the whole time. So that's why when you, if we assume that people get to the race start, they've eaten, it doesn't matter too much generically whether they've for the last six weeks been eating a relatively high salt diet or relatively low, they're still going to turn up at the race. Unless they've done something extreme in the last 48 hours, they're going to turn up at the race with balanced blood sodium levels. And so when you start sweating heavily, the onus on someone who eats a high salt diet to, to replace, uh, sorry, who loses a lot of sweat and sodium is still very high, even if they've been eating a high salt diet and the onus on someone who, to replace it who's not sweating a lot or not losing a lot of salt is still low because the general day-to-day diet doesn't really impact those things. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's absolutely. Sort of relevance so, in, one's, in one respect. So, so basically the, the, the summary there is the kidneys are a fantastic part of our body. Yeah, unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievable the work they do. Yeah. yeah. And again, I, I sound like I, I don't want to do this as a – as a plug, but there is, we've got a really, again, a really in-depth blog on that on salt balance and the kidneys and stuff on our, on our website. So if, if I can share that link with you as well, Absolutely. that might provide a little bit more insight talks about the role of dietary sodium in all of this. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the important thing with this podcast is, is to provide introductory information that people then need to follow up on because yeah. we are literally going to 
saturate them, which is probably a good word considering the the, the podcast. Yeah. Saturate them with information that that they will need to to investigate and and adapt so that they can find out how it works for them. Um, okay, so let's assume that I'm a seventy three kilogram male. I've worked out that I'm losing one liter of fluid every hour in in um, let's say twenty eight degrees temperature. So I yeah. know roughly what my fluid loss is, and I can be mindful of that when I'm training or racing. How do I then know how to replenish electrolytes and and, and, and in what quantities? So if you're acting on no information about your own sweat sodium levels, if you've not had a test and you can't put your finger on a number there, then... There's a number of ways to approach it. One of them, if, you've, if you're not particularly experienced, you don't have a huge amount of um, experience of how your body reacts in different conditions and things, i.e. you've got no kind of further concrete information to go on, I would say it's probably beneficial to assume that you're using a moderate amount of sodium in your sweat. Yeah. So not assume that you're on one extreme or the other because statistically you're more likely to reside near the middle. And then you would, you would put an adequate what we would call like a middling or adequate level of sodium replacement in, which is probably for shorter events going to be somewhere around five, six, 700 milligrams of sodium per liter of fluid. And for longer events more might be more like a thousand milligrams of sodium per liter of fluid. Right. So it's kind of a, a safe middle ground. The reason I, I throw those figures around is because whilst they would be inadequate for someone who's losing loads of fluid and sodium if you are someone who's losing loads of sodium and fluid there's a very good chance you're going to have an inkling of that because either you're suffering debilitating muscle cramps all the time when you're in the heat or massive performance decrement in the heat you're seeing yourself caked in salt when you finish races you're craving salt when you're either towards the latter end or after races and there, there, there might be some some kind of visual and internal cues that you're losing a lot more salt the other thing as well is although for some people if we gave you a thousand milligrams and you were light salt sweater it might be more than what you need for an acute period of time there's very little downside yeah or close to no downside and a potential upside to taking some electrolytes to that kind of level especially if you're doing a longer and hotter race mm -hmm. so it and then you're in the game of just okay well you know, keeping accurate records and and assessing how you feel using different ratios of replenishment okay. to to build up a picture, a bit like you do with all, all sorts of other aspects of your performance. You know, it's kind of you get to know your body, and I think I'm I'm really big with athletes. I'm noting down in their training diaries and in their racing recollections, you know, how much carbohydrate, fluid, and sodium they took through the course of races, with what products, with what how that left their GI system how that left them feeling from a hydration perspective a cramping perspective an energy perspective because over time you really learn to see and spot some trends and iterate towards the most appropriate plan for you yeah so just so that i i clarify here for, for the listener who who might not have too much information who wants a an easy route to electrolyte replacement they very often will go to the the local running shop or a, a chemist or a health store and they'll see a product on a shelf um i'm sort of reluctant to name a product but i will i will say noon yeah what benefits 
I mean, I'm, I'm guessing it's better than nothing, but but how does, a say, a Noon tablet or a similar product fit into uh, an electrolyte recovery program? Yeah, so things like, you know, Noon tablets, High Five tablets, SIS tablets, whatever, the, the, the kind of the ones that most brand names that pe- most people would be familiar with, they tend to reside somewhere between, if you mix them up as directed, which is always interesting when we see what people do in the real world (laughs) they just tend to chuck one in a bottle of any size but most of these tablets are one in 500 milliliters in order to get into the right concentration they'll give you somewhere between 400 and maybe 700 milligrams of sodium per liter so probably between 200 and 350 milligrams per tablet right um that's kind of a, a that's 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 a physiologically significant level it's not like some of the absolute rubbish that we see on the market which is gives you like single Nothing. digits yeah. of milligrams <laughs> essentially and, and a load of other vitamins and minerals that you don't really need yeah so they're they're not they're definitely not bad products but they tend to be on so they for for from an ultra perspective they're they're pretty lightweight they're pretty much on the low side we would only ever recommend people who aren't really sweating a lot or losing a lot of sodium using a product of that strength at the point we we make products at 250 500 1000 and 1500 milligrams of sodium per liter and though that we find that the the numbers tell us that the the preference for people and the the ones that are most effective for people doing longer and hotter events are the thousand and the 1500 so like the really the, the stronger ones in general yeah. of course based on all this based on all the individuality there are exceptions but the sort of the needle moves in the direction of, of the stronger ones so there's nothing inherently bad with those other products but it's a case of it's a case of getting the right tool for the job yeah. it, the, the, the the analogy with running would be that you know a a sort of if you turned up to a muddy trail race you know if you if you turn up with with road shoes, yeah. that's the equivalent of probably turning up with a bottle of water. If you turn up with a, a weak electrolyte solution, it might be a, it might be a, a sort of a, a slightly grippy trail shoe. But what you actually need is a heavy lugged Salomon Speed Cross or something like yeah. that. And that's what that's what that will that is what the stronger electrolyte drinks are for people who are sweating more or for hotter races. So it's just a case of like you know. Choosing that choosing your weapon appropriately for what you need it to do. Okay, so let me segue that into an event like Marathon de Sable, um, yeah. which has got an incredible thirty-seven year history. Um, takes place in a hot yeah. environment where uh, electrolyte replacement is key, uh, and the consequences yeah. of not getting that right are pretty significant. Um, yeah, they've always supplied salt tablets. Now, yeah. What is a salt tablet and how do salt tablets vary? Because my concern has always been with, with the salt tablet at Marathon de Sable is you, you have no real information as to what that salt tablet is and how that salt tablet is made up. Um, and, you know, is a salt tablet just sodium or, or does it contain chloride, potassium, magnesium, calcium, um, all those other things that we need? So my understanding of the salt tablets that have been typically supplied at MDS and would be the kind that you would buy if you you went to a, a regular pharmacy and asked for a salt tablet is they are basically either encapsulated or compacted table salt, sodium chloride. Yeah. So that's the, the, the formula for that is Na, which is the sodium, Cl, which is the chloride. The composition of sodium chloride is 
it's it's made up of 39% sodium and 61% chloride. Right. So if you took a, if you took an, a, a one gram of those tablets, a, a, a thousand milligrams, you would be ingesting 390 milligrams of sodium and right. you know 610. Six, uh, yeah, six thousand six hundred. What am I saying? Yeah, 610 milligrams of chloride. So you, you do sweat out sodium and chloride. Chloride's less relevant in our discussion because although, although it's important, it's, there's a bit, it's a bit complicated on it. But you can think of chloride as a bit of a passenger in this whole thing right. as opposed to like the protagonist. Um, so we focus on the sodium number. And so you are essentially just taking compacted salt which right. is which is a good step towards replacing what your what your body's losing um, um, the as you as you've pointed out one of the interesting things is i've never really truly been able to find out exactly and i don't know if it's because they change brands or they change what but getting the exact composition of those tablets has always been tricky with mds yeah um but the assumption would be just based on the size and that kind of thing that these things are going to probably deliver you somewhere in the region of 200 milligrams of sodium in each cap, in each tablet. And so if we're talking about athletes needing to hit a, a sort of a replenishment level of say six, eight, a thousand milligrams of sodium per hour through a combination of those tablets, probably sports nutrition products that they're bringing mm-hmm. and the foods that they're eating, it's relatively they're a good adjunct to what they're already taking in and they just help to top that up, which is probably why they're recommending you take about two an hour because it sort of gives you another 400 yeah. milligrams yeah. of sodium an hour or something like yeah. that. Um, and I, I, I don't know if this is a good point to, to segue into the question because I know we, we talked about it before we started recording, but the, the fact that they're potentially talking about no longer issuing those mm-hmm is really, really interesting to yeah, me. Yeah, because... and, and this is part of the reason that we're having this chat, is that, that you know, MDS as, an, as a prime example, part of the process of, of runners when they go through admin day, everybody is given a, a packet of salt tablets and the recommendation, um, and, and I'm going from memory here, but I believe it's two tablets per hour, and then yeah. if you're if you're a, a runner who's out on the course after four hours, you increase by one or two tablets. Um, yeah. Or for every one and a half liter bottle of water, you take two tablets. Um, and and yeah. again, this is the this is the generic scenario, which isn't yeah. ideal. Um, but but uh, yeah. you can follow on from that conversation. Yeah, for sure. So out of the gates, what I do want to say is that if that the generic recommendation then if you gave me if you put me in front of the x amount of thousand people running the mds and said andy you've got 15 seconds to communicate something that's not a stupid strategy to do with these salt tablets but then you've got to shut up yeah that's i would say something exactly like what they've said which is like take a, a sensible take a reasonable amount of these as a precaution when you're out there a short amount of time and the longer you're out there, you're going to need to escalate that a little bit because your total fluid and sodium losses are going to increase, you know, case closed. The, the interesting thing is, though, and that's so, so on the positive side, there's clearly a lot of very well-informed, experienced, sensible people in charge of the MDS. And they do a really good job on looking after the health of their participants. On the flip side, what's amazing to me is I know 
from first-hand experience being around a lot of these people who've who prepared for the MDS and how big of a challenge and task it is. Like you would not do, you would not take generic advice on some generic advice on what shoes to wear or what pack to carry or what other thing. Why the hell would you take like generic advice on something which could be absolutely critical to your health and performance in the race? Because although that generic advice is going to hit them, probably going to hit the middle of the bell curve and help keep people on track. That is, I, I can tell you categorically, that advice is not going to work for me. No. If I'm doing MDS, I'm going to take vastly more because I've got years of data and hard won experience to tell me that those numbers would be inadequate for me. Yeah. And I suppose that's my fear with this move of MDS towards like putting it entirely on the participants to do this is that they are removing a bit of a crutch there. I don't see i'd be interested to to really understand their reasoning okay let me let me step in there because i can give you the reasoning Um, so at the half marathon de sable they they which has been running for the last four or five years um the owner of half marathon de sable is the new co-owner of marathon de sable so of course when you get a new owner you get new systems new changes yeah. So Doc Trotters, which has been part of Marathon de Sable for God knows how many years, will no longer be the doctors for Marathon de yeah. Sable. And they are using the doctor team, which has been on the half Marathon de Sable events, which is called Doc Ever. They're a French team. Yeah. And on, on half Marathon de Sable, which is three days, not, not five or six. So, so yeah. you know, there is a significant difference. The advice that they have given is no salt tablets because yeah. they can cause sickness, they can cause medical problems such as blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and the recommendation is to take a no-vegetable packet soup. Yeah. So, so that is the thought process. Now, yeah. I, I'm well aware that no vegetable packet soups have a lot of salt in them, but my yeah. my worry is, I have two worries. Um, one is you're not going to be taking no vegetable soup while you're running an event because that is just no. not going to work. <laughs> and no. I'm not convinced that once I'd run 30k in the desert, that I'd be really interested in taking a no vegetable soup afterwards. Some people can, but but I, I worry that if this is the only um, advice in terms of replacement of sodium, it's a little bit open to to problems. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd I'd, I'd be inclined to agree with that. I mean, I think if I put my positive hat on the acknowledgement, if if they were just going to be saying we don't believe that athletes need to take much salt in, so we're we're going to stop supplying it to them, that would be a I think a fundamental change in philosophy and yes. one that would be very difficult to understand and reconcile with the science you know there's it, it just wouldn't fit the fact that they're saying we're not going to supply these because we perceive there to be problems and what i want to do at that point is say i absolutely recognize and concur with them on the fact that if the problem with giving athletes tablets and capsules and things is that that a lot of athletes assume that and we all do this in lots of different areas of our preparation, that if one of something is good, then two will be better, three will be amazing, mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah. screw it, I might take ten, because think how good that would be, you yeah. know. Um, and obviously that's not the case, because you do, this is about balance, this is about there being a, an optimum amount, this is an in, inverted U curve, where once you start taking too much, the 
the benefits drop away and the problems start to occur. Yes. So the fact that they're saying taken, I don't have off the top of my head what salt is in an oil vegetable soup, but I agree with you, it's going to be high. Yeah. So they're still acknowledging that there's a, and there's two, there's two factors at play here, which need to be sort of explored. One is that in, in any 24 hour period within the MDS, if you start, if we start that 24 hour period from, just before the start of the day until just before the start of the following day, you're going to go through a cycle of fluid and electrolyte loss and fluid and electrolyte replenishment. And you can potentially, and and your aim there is to get back to net zero the next morning. So however much fluid and electrolyte you excrete and sweat out during one day, you want to be still on the start line the next day, you hydrate it again, i.e., having replaced all of that fluid and all of that electrolyte so that you're back in homeostasis at yeah. the start. Clearly, there's two ways, there's multiple ways of approaching that, but there's two main ways. One is you could say, in a, 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 clearly I'm not recommending this and it would sound ridiculous, but you could drink and consume no fluid and no electrolytes when you were running and replace it all afterwards yeah. um, and then get back to zero. That's not going to work because the magnitude of losses or what you can do is you can decide to start replenishing it on the move during the race in with with two goals in mind one is to is to get ahead of what you're losing in terms of not having to do so much catch-up and not putting yourself in such a hole at the end of the stage and also maintaining your performance because you could potentially lose enough fluid and electrolyte in a single stage of that to dramatically compromise your performance. Yeah. So in my head, the sensible regime and the one which we always preach to people is, is to, is to, you know, based, based around their level of sweat and sodium losses to replace an adequate amount of sodium and fluid throughout the stage and then continue to do so until they feel topped off in the evening and, and another top up in the morning after. Yeah. If, if the organization are removing the easy access to salt tablets, salt capsules during the event itself, that's for some people that's going to be not too bad to deal with because they're just going to either instinctively or by in a pre-planned way, they're going to increase their sodium intake before and after the stage and deal with it during the stage. But for, for those people, my concern would be for those people whose losses are extremely high is that they're now going to be in charge of like supplying and managing their electrolyte intake within the stage as well. And they're going to need to factor that into what they buy and what they carry to the event because they're going to need to hit some higher numbers. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, and I think, I think, you know, the thing that, that flagged my concern was that there is an assumption that for all the participants going to the Sahara in 2024, that salt tablets will be available. And and I've stressed to the organization that it's going to be really important that whatever decision that they make, whether they are going to supply salt tablets or whether they are not, to inform the runners. Because Absolutely. there will be a lot of the runners arriving in the desert thinking, I'm going to get salt tablets. And then if they are not... Yeah that is going to be a huge problem because then they will yeah. not be able to buy them. They will not have anything. And I, I really worry that, that there will be a significant problem with with all sorts of things you know <laughs> you you yeah. can you can exa- you know you can sort of like fully explain the the consequences of what would happen but i think it's pretty straightforward if 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 you're a runner and you you realize what it's like 
to to get yourself in this situation where you're not replacing your electrolytes it's not going to end well so i think ultimately mm. self-responsibility is a good thing i think information and and this must come from the race uh, about what the strategy yeah. will be um is really really important and then speaking or communicating with somebody like yourself um at precision fuel and hydration to find out you know what is the best step forward and 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 i say that with a a slight caveat in that i know that everybody maybe can't afford or doesn't have the time mm. to come to somebody like yourself to have a uh, a sweat test and find out exactly what they need mm -hmm. and, I, and i guess that's why we're having the podcast is so that that you can provide an overview of information about steps that people need to take so that they are informed and can make the best decisions between now and and april for marathon de sable but but this is relevant to any event i think I think the thing is, is that something like MDS and, and any other stage race, the, the, the chances for problems are increased uh, substantially because of multi-day uh, depletion, ongoing depletion, and then the consequences of that. Absolutely. And I think that's where you, it's hard to draw a comparison between what might have worked for the organisers in the half MDS compared with the full. Yeah. Um, I, I would have seen it as being a, maybe a more a more prudent like halfway step to say reduce the amount of salt tablets that were available to people or reducing the or reducing the if they felt it was the right thing to do to reduce the recommendations you know in terms of the amount that they're they're saying to people say but rather than like take this away yeah I think there's, I mean there's, there's layers and layers of potential problems as you point out because although people do a lot of homework and research before these events if they go back into the forums if they read a lot of the articles that are online they'll all of it will reference the fact that the two things you get supplied are water and salt tablets yes. and so in, unless it's made front and center to the participants that they really under, understand not only that that is not happening but what the implications what the implication of that is it's a disservice to them yeah um to your point about people being able to access information through people like us we we obviously are fairly active within this sort of mbs network of, of athletes a lot of people through word of mouth have, have passed details on through that community and what i would say to anyone who's listening to this who wants more information is try our knowledge hub on the website and search for mbs and search for all the articles about sodium replenishment the other thing as well is that we offer year-round is the ability for people to have um free of charge video calls with our sports science team they can book a 20-minute call it's the links in the footer of our website and um the thing i will categorically say is it's not you will you will not have your any products pitched to you it's not a sales call or anything like that it's an opportunity for you to bring your questions about fueling and hydration to someone with a level of expertise in that and so there's, and there's no there's no charge and there's no follow-up so if if you don't if you aren't sure whether you want to take the full step and like book a sweat test and do all of the things where you start having to pay for stuff you can always book a free video call to chat to one of us and we'll always do what we can to assist cool cool now uh, i'm just going to ask another question here based on the salt tablets that there are products that exist um and and Correct me if I'm wrong, Andy, you'll know far better than I, but but I feel as though they came from the triathlete world, something like Salt Stick. Yeah, Salt Stick, definitely, but from triathlon. Yeah, so so Salt Stick as a product, how how is that different to 
Assault tablet, and does it fulfil um, the the relevant needs in comparison to say products that that you would supply from Precision Hydration? Yeah, so Salt Stick is a good product. Um, uh, we make a we make a similar product called which we just call electrolyte capsules. Um, basically, these things tend to be encapsulated rather than a compacted tablet of salt. Yeah. For ours, we use a blend of sodium chloride, but also some sodium citrate to get the level of sodium right in there because chloride is quite acidic. So if you take lots and lots of sodium chloride, you're actually adding something which is a bit acidic to the stomach and to the body at a time when you probably want to be bringing the um, you know bringing something more alkaline if you can. Yeah. Um, just in terms of stomach irritation and, and and the general milieu that's in the body. So things like salt stick capsules um, are, are pretty similar in composition. They also, whereas a, a sodium chloride tablet literally is sodium chloride, no other electrolytes, the ones that we provide and, and things like salt stick often have potassium, calcium, magnesium in small amounts, but amounts that are um, sort of plausible and relevant to what the average person loses in their sweat because where there's big variances in what people lose in sodium in their sweat, the, the other electrolytes tend to be a lot more they, they tend to be lost in smaller amounts and more um, constrained amounts between different people. Now, arguably, in acute setting, there's not a great requirement to replace those in great quantities or in any quantities when you're actually doing an activity. Obviously, in the context of a week of heavy sweating or this, and where your diet is not great because you eat a lot of freeze-dyed food that you've carried and stuff that might be pretty poor in terms of like we get a lot of potassium from fresh fruit and vegetables in our diet and that that's going to be lacking at the end yes there's a small argument that might say actually having a more balanced electrolyte capsule will help you to replace some of those but you're going to be cycling through a lot more the other electrolytes as well so there's a there's a sort of a slight argument there that that might be superior and the other thing as well is because they're because they're encapsulated you can swallow them without sort of having to choke down the salty taste which might sound like a a really kind of like first world problem thing but but after a while sometimes it can be quite it can be quite off-putting to like mm-hmm. keep banging pure salt down and it can make you feel a bit sick whereas having them in a capsule form is maybe a little bit you know more tolerable so there's minor differences but but honestly the the, the major one still to focus on is getting the adequate level of sodium replacement and so whether you do that through salt tablets through packets of salt through salt on your food through salty snacks through capsules through whatever the main thing is getting the right amount of numbers in rather than it being wedded to any particular product or brand no and thinking about your your product um your capsules are 250 milligrams of sodium per capsule so that actually in a way kind of works quite nice i know that that's not an accident but you know two capsules 500 three capsules 750 four capsules a thousand um that sort of like fits in quite well with the numbers that you're talking about in terms of of averages of people sweating. So if, I'm, I'm always reluctant to say that, if somebody was not doing the research, just wanted a quick answer, three capsules an hour at Marathon de Sable yeah, would probably be absolutely. a good starting point. Yeah, if you put a gun to my head and gave me five seconds to give someone a piece of advice, I'd say take these, take three of these an hour along with about a litre of water. Yeah. 
And, you know, and if you're a person that is covered in dried salt, you need more. If you're a person four, that, five, yeah. yeah. And if you're a person that is not really sweating that much, then maybe one or two, depending. One or two. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> it's a complicated <laughs> subject, this, and we could talk for, for many hours, I'm absolutely sure. Um, we've given a lot of people information here, uh, and I will say, precisionhydration.com is a place to go there's lots of resources lots of blogs um as andy has said it may be a really really good idea to book one of these 20 minute calls and and get your mind clear so that you can find some answers for which to follow on uh and be informed i mean at the end of the day no matter what event you're doing you're investing a lot of training time a lot of financial time and don't let it all fall apart because you don't get this part of your package right um andy as a closing way to to finish this off is there anything that you'd like to to say is there anything that i've not asked that we need to discuss we've it's it's been it's it's been a really comprehensive chat in and you know you've had uh, you know thanks for the questions and also I'm, i can't thank you enough for alerting me to this sort of movement in mds because i think that's going to stimulate a lot of chat and a lot of thought in our office about how we can you know interact and help athletes that are going to going to enter the the race this time around yeah. i think what I, what i do to circle on it is just say look or hydration and hydration in terms of fluid and electrolyte replacement exists on a continuum between at the extreme left-hand side where people who don't sweat very much don't lose a lot of electrolytes, and particularly if they're competing in cooler conditions, there are people that really don't need to worry too much about this. They can drink water when they're thirsty and they'll get on absolutely fine. If you go to the other end of the continuum where you've got people who are heavy sweaters, who lose lots of sodium and who are doing really long and hot events, those people need an appropriate, aggressive and tested strategy and pre-plan in order to manage their hydration. And if you if you imagine that continuum and think about your personal situation, your physiology, the type of races and environments that you work with, and you will sit somewhere on that continuum line. Yeah. The closer you are to the right-hand side, the more bang for your buck you'll get for invest, investing your your time, patience, energy, and, and money into like becoming getting gaining a bit of expertise and help in that in that area so based on that you can decide it's not a binary choice of this does this for me or not it's it's evaluating it in through that lens and then you'll be able to decide like how vigorously you want to chase gains in this area awesome thank you so much for your time uh, it's been enlightening as always um and as i say precisionhydration.com folks if you want to put that into your search engine um there's there's a, a sub menu and you can then there's a knowledge hub a, a contact us page and 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 i'm not sure sure whether you'll get a response from andy but you'll get a response from somebody <laughs> absolutely no no ai and bots in this organization it's a team of people who want to answer you know so get in touch Thanks so much, Andy. No problem. Thanks, Ian. Appreciate the invite. This is Talk Ultra. Well, Carl, it's been great to have you back on. Uh, it's been a huge gap. And, and, and I need to clarify that it's not that I've been putting a podcast out and you've not been on it. I've just not been putting the podcast out. Yeah. I've been, like, too, too, too busy. No, I've got- um, 
and and I think one good thing is is that it's actually quite nice having a chat after months because then we we are actually just chatting there's no hidden agenda there's no you know we need to cover this we need to cover that we are literally just like having a beer and saying hey what happened at western states and what about backdog you know i mean it's it's good to actually have that they're always the best conversations of just chatting you know like whenever i've done it with anybody in the past it's always been like you know they always say well you know say this first say that first or whatever and it's like you know i'll just ad lib it and throw it in there <laughs> and but yeah. it's the best because it's really comes from it's the truth you know it's like we just chat about whatever and i think the people like that and i think and i'm glad people listen and, and listen to my mumble jumble sometimes um yeah you know it's it, it's been a really it's been a really cool sport to be involved with all my life and i would never change the thing um i don't care money would not matter to me i i've you know I would never followed the dollar. I've followed my passion. And I think it's cool that people understand that. I, I like to say live first, die later. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's live your passion, folks. Like, don't, don't, don't. And I've said one other thing with one other thing. My last thing I'll say is that many people go, they want to get their jobs, right? And they, they, they apply for jobs online or wherever they do. And they go to the location where the job is and they end up living there for a long, long time but they may not like where they live. My, my yeah. always to say, go to where you want to live and then find your job there, whatever yeah. that may be. And then your, your life will be so much more complete because you'll, you'll live in a place and wake up in the morning and say, ah, oh, this is, this place is cool. I like being here, you know? Yeah. Um, and if you have a job that you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Exactly. And that's kind of what I feel. I really don't feel like I have a job Ian. And because, I mean, I do, I coach people and I, and I run and I do some things and stuff, but but it's like, I don't really feel like I work. And it, I mean, it's, it's priceless, you know? I mean, that's like you said, yeah. you, if you live where you want to live and do what you want to do, and it's, it's you know, you live once, man. It's like, what are you going to do? I mean, I moved to Colorado because I, I wanted to get out of Salt Lake. And I said, I'm going to move there. And, and I said to Cheryl, you know, my wife, Cheryl, she stopped working at the end of June this year. And she's going to work again, I hope, <laughs> but, <laughs> but at the same time, um, don't worry about that. We'll, we'll go over there and we'll figure it out. And yeah. it's great because now I, when I sit out in my, in my yard and I can't hear anything, there's no noise, there's no sirens, there's no drag races and there's no helicopters flying over me. <laughs> and that's uh, so nice. It's so nice. I can't tell you how quiet it is here and the sky is dark and, you know, what a, what a, what a great, great thing I did by just moving. I'm like, it's time. So I just followed my passion and do what I want to. And that's what people should always do. Well, that's cool. It's been great having you back on Carl. Um, let's try and catch up in a, in a shorter time. Uh, next time. Cool. Um, and folks, thanks for being here listening. It's really appreciated. As always, share us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter. Oh, no, X is on X now. It's no longer Twitter, is it? Um, that's how long it is since I wrote the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> it's all very confusing. Uh, go to Instagram at Ian Cordless Photography and use good old word of mouth. iTunes and subscribe. You get the show automatically. And we're on all the platforms, Stitcher for iOS, Android, Web Player, TuneIn, Spotify, whatever it is. Back catalogue at iancorless.org. I'm Ian Corliss. He is Speedgoat Carl. Keep running.
You're listening to the global ultra running podcast, Talk Ultra. 